Chris O'Connor here. Join the Curmudgeon Rock Report's invite-only curmudgeonly community at facebook.com slash curmudgeonrock. Also look out for a Spotify playlist that pays honor to this episode. Now, let's launch into our next installment of our epic series, The Fourth Golden Age of Rock, which covers the seismic musical shifts and darkest hours of 1994. Here is our Turo Andrade to set us up. In the last episode of our fourth Golden Age of Rock series, we explored the very underrated year of 1993, which saw the release of some of the greatest and most important albums of this fourth Golden Age. If you lived through this time, it seemed like the good music would never stop. Then, in early April 1994, the music world, and the world in general, was shocked to find out that Nirvana's frontman, Kurt Cobain, committed suicide. It really wasn't a surprise to those close to him or people or to people who listened astutely to his lyrics. Nevertheless, there was a palpable feeling that his death marked the end of an era. In fact, there are quite a few people today who still feel that way. Well, this episode, focusing on 1994, will irrefutably prove that that feeling is wrong. In fact, It's flat-out bullshit. Cobain's death in 94 was in no way the end of an era. What it was, was a defining moment in the middle of Rock's fourth golden age. It was, in fact, a demarcation point between the first and second halves of this fourth golden age. And how could it not be? The plethora of amazing, influential music and all-time classic great albums from 1994 to 97, even going into 1998, is proof that this fourth golden age sustained its brilliance for a long time after, and probably in spite of, the death of the artist most identified with having ushered in this golden age. So, what do we have in 1994? You have... The two biggest British bands of the decade launch Britpop into the stratosphere with two enduring, timeless classics, and in the process also launch one of the most entertainingly bitter feuds rock has ever seen, with serious socio-cultural undertones of class distinction and conflict. Electronic-influenced industrial rock sees its day in the mainstream sun when its greatest band and visionary leader releases a masterpiece of sonic invention and troubled psychodrama. While two of grunge rock's titanic bands release arguably their greatest albums and forever change their career trajectories, a slew of American bands from across the indie and alternative spectrum put out records that to this day stand the test of time as some of the rock genre's all-time greatest albums. The very British music style of trip-hop may have been kicked off by Massive Attack three years earlier, but another group came in 94 to steal steal their thunder by releasing what is arguably trip-hop's finest moment and one of the most underratedly influential albums of all time. Two of North American classic rock's most revered artists put out later career masterpieces that stand alongside their very best work from the 1970s. Finally, three California bands, 
one from Orange County and two from the Bay Area, bring pop punk screaming to the mainstream masses, while another band from Bakersfield, California, releases a debut album that revolutionizes heavy metal by inverting its DNA and setting the path forward for legions of followers and imitators. Welcome to the impossibly glorious year of 1994 as the fourth golden age of rock continues. I'll end up alone like I began. Sounds like it could pretty much tell the story of 1994 as a whole, doesn't it, dude? Yes, it does. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty perfect lyric. Uh, you know, obviously we're quoting from uh, Pearl Jam's uh, Corduroy there. And a marvelous year. Remember, it was formative for us, but also formative uh, for the culture, because as we'll get into in a couple minutes, uh, nothing has been the same since April the 5th of 1994. Yeah. Uh, any, any thoughts before we uh, go through the wormhole? Yeah. Starting from 1994 onward, time seemed to get really, really fast. Everything was slow until 1994. I don't know what it was about that year. It's like, I guess my freshman year in college, I don't know, the end of my freshman year in college, but yeah. time really, really picked up, got really fast from Yeah, the, 94 the, onward. On that note, before we go back into the time machine, we need to propel ourselves to the other side of the space-time continuum as we are wont to do. Uh, welcome, y'all, to the parallel universe. Uh, here is where blue is green and uh, tall is short and the bands and artists and albums that we think ought to be enormous and be filling the stadiums and be filling the airwaves uh, are actually on the radio and in the stadiums and on the cover of Rolling Stone. And uh, so, as we always do, we will each uh, cover an album over here that we think that you ought to know about and we think that you ought to uh, love just as much as we do. On that note, Arturo, what album are you covering in the Parallel Universe? Yes, the American band Calexico, uh, named after the small border town of Calexico, California, but actually based in Tucson, Arizona. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. they've, they've been around for a really long time. Uh, since the late 1990s, they've bewitched fans like me. I'm a big fan um, with their truly unique blend of folk rock, country rock, instrumentation that evokes Desert Panoramas and Ennio Morricone's Spaghetti Western film soundtracks and Hmm. traditional Mexican music, particularly mariachi and tejano. Uh, The band has a small but devoted cult and niche audience, but in a parallel universe where rock music is still a prominent genre and the best bands get radio exposure, Calexico would be a national treasure. Absolutely. Uh, Their latest album is called El Mirador, which is Spanish for The Mirror. Uh, It's an apt title because while the band has always shown strong strands of Latin music in their exotic sound, El Mirador finds Calexico diving deeper into Latin music than ever before. Uh, The twist comes in the fact that they move beyond their beloved Mexican and Tex-Mex colors to embrace cumbia, Uh, For those of you who don't know, cumbia is a Latin dance music style with its roots in traditional Colombian music. Uh, The album is drenched in cumbia and uh, cumbian rhythms, uh, and uh, it's all the better for it uh, and lovelier for it, as tracks titled uh, 
Cumbia Peninsula and Cumbia del Polvo, Cumbia hmm. of Dust, might attest. Uh, the title track kicks the album off with a gorgeous slice of classic, classy Cuban son music uh, with its hip swaying, jazzy swing and Spanish sung lyrics. Um, of course, this band has the suffix Exico in the name. So Mexico is never too far away, as evident by the stomping mariachi rock and outlaw love story of El Burro song, the idiot song. <laughs> uh, their sexy, smoky desert panorama rock is still present as well with tracks like Then You Might See and Rancho Azul, Blue Ranch. Basically, this is the same old Calexico we've come to know and love but with a hand dipped even further into traditional Latin music. Uh, it's a sterling addition to their rich discography. Entonces, Cristóbal, dígame, ¿estás enamorado con el sonido de Calégico? Sí, uh, very, uh, mucho. Uh, so uh, I remember now, uh, Calexico, it, it, they had really, it was stunning when I heard this record, uh, that they always, like you said, they have always dabbled in uh, mariachi and uh, other uh, Latin music, uh, country music. Uh, obviously, I think they're influenced by film noir. Uh, Joey Burns, yeah. jo Joey Burns and Company. Uh, like you said, uh, when I lived in Phoenix, uh, that was when they were starting to get uh, national renown, and they pretty much invented a style that's known as Sonoran rock, as in mm -hmm. the Sonoran Valley, which is their. Uh, south of uh, Tucson, basically borderland uh, with Mexico. And so it's just this uh, blend of all those styles. But it was un unescapably uh, rock and informed by college rock. I mean, right. you, you, you couldn't say that it was a hybrid. Uh, yeah, the, the influences were there. The ambition was there. Okay, they're rock band. Here we are 20 years later, and uh, I turn on a Colexico record, and it is Orthodox Cubano followed by Orthodox Cumbia. Uh, cumbia, not cumbia. Cumbia. Yeah. Hey, 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 you're the you're the Latino here, not me. You know. It's, it's, you know. Hey, hey, Trump rocks. Anyway, uh, but it, the fact that they have gotten that much more sophisticated uh, incrementally over the years, so now it's it's the Calexico is still there here and there, but now they are getting actually ambitious and actually more credible in uh, doing those sort of Latin jazz, uh, Latin mm. dance music, sort of uh, what would you call it? Like Latin discotheque kind of music, but, but in the, yeah. the, the traditional acoustic yeah. uh, type of type Latin music. And so they're kind B of basically the folk based dance music. Yes. You know? they, yeah. they have morphed into more of a folk uh, band than they ever have. Um, they rock, but with a decided, you know, sort of, a calmer edge, a more exotic edge, a more worldly edge. And I think that that, uh, that's, that's still pretty exciting. Uh, so anyway, yeah. so now we go from Calexico, which is a, a very sophisticated, uh, very uh, worldly band, uh, to something that is decidedly and way less worldly, uh, and <laughs> a lot goofier, yeah. but worth uh, a shout out. Um, I think it's a really strong little pop record. Uh, this is from a band called My Idea, and it's an album that just came out within the last month or so called Cry M. Effer. A um, little bit of a childish name, a little bit of a childish uh, album, but it's fun. It's a, a pop record. It, I guess you could call it a bedroom pop record because you can tell it was made with, uh, with keyboards and uh, samplers and uh, 
drum machines, but with a little bit of uh, a little bit of panache. Uh, these are uh, two folks, two, a guy and a girl from other bands uh, based in Brooklyn. The girl is Lily Koningsberg. Uh, the guy is a guy named Nate Amos. And uh, they, you know, like a lot of young folks in their 20s, they struck up a friendship that became a deep friendship that they started making music together while getting high. And they started to wonder, gee, are we going to become something else? And, and so they kind of conceived the record out of this whole uh, of this whole thing of of this uh, just friends sexual tension. You know, I'm 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 gonna yeah. I'm gonna have my carnality anyway. And so there's these these fun uh, songs basically centered around that concept of I love you. Maybe I want to, I want to bang you, but I'm probably never will. And so I'll just uh, channel that into the music and it manifests itself in a a lot of uh, different ways. Uh, You know, some of them uh, beguiling uh, as on the uh, song Lily's phone. Uh, Again, the name of this album is cry M effort. Lily's phone is just like kind of a, like a kind of a silly, almost like summary, um, processed uh like clipped the little guitar rock you and you would think it was like uh, from some uh, late 90s pop uh band but it's it, but it's a cute uh song kind of of uh puppy love uh the title song actually is very strong uh, uh it's the one song on the record that you would say yeah this is by professionals uh and it's you know it's very clean and uh, uh very pretty actually uh you know konensberg's got a surprisingly uh, engaging little voice it's not it's not full throated, but it's, but it's engaging. Uh, but then on the other extreme, it's interesting because you could tell which songs that she wrote and what songs he wrote. Uh, she is a much more orthodox and serious songwriter than he is. Uh, essentially he's just like a stoner goofball idiot. Yeah. And, uh, there's one song on here, which will be the one that as it gets coverage will be talked about most called breathe you, which, uh, Amos has said in his press was, actually inspired by goofing on Justin Bieber while he was high off his ass. Uh, and so, yes, he messes with the uh, auto tune. He messes with the bedroom rhythms and the most childish lyrics about wanting to fuck uh, you. And, you know, maybe we'll fuck each other and maybe I'll, I'll suck it up and, and do this. And so it's kind of like a very um, leering fantasy bordering on creepy, but it is funny. Uh, it is one of those songs that is so bad and so weird and so dumb that it is just funny. Um, and but it, it it's done in service of the concept, which is the guy and the girl that are best friends who maybe want to be together, but probably shouldn't be. And so uh, that is something that runs uh, through uh, the course of this record. Fifteen songs, uh, forty four minutes, which is these days that's the way I like it. That's a theme in a lot of my choices these days and yours, Arturo, that, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, these, these short, uh, bright records. Uh, if it's not a King Gizzard record uh, on this show, chances are it's less than 40 minutes or 45 <laughs> minutes. So yeah. that's kind of become the rule. Uh, so anyway, I'm going to get a sense that you're not as, uh, intrigued uh, by this record. I, I recommend it with the caveat that it's a fun little record in about two years. It'll be, uh, Hey, remember them? Uh, it's not, there's not going to be much of a cult. In other words, yeah, no, I, I think this album for the most part is a piece of shit. <laughs> uh, um, listen, there's one, if there's anything worse than twee, it's being self-consciously twee. <laughs> and, and, and this, and this album and this group definitely is that it's just full of these, you know, okay, we're going to make 
all these cutesy, soft indie pop songs, but the lyrics are going to be really sexually explicit. Get it? The irony? Ha ha. Ironic. Yeah, yeah. Wink, wink. It's a little too on the nose. Um, I think most of the songs are just just not really well written. There are a couple of songs I do like. Um, I like One Tree Hell, which was cleverly uh, uh, named after the U2 song from the Joshua Tree. Um, it's a Lily Konigsberg song. It's a, yeah. it's, it's a, it's a nice little piece of catchy folk pop. Um, and I do like the song pop star, which is kind of a, a catchy yeah. little, you know, uh, um, indie techno pop track, but those are the only two, I think really surviving graces, um, of this o- otherwise really obnoxious record. Um, but those two songs make me think what Lily Konigsberg would, it makes me wonder what she would sound like if she were working with a, a much better collaborator other yeah. than the, other than the doofus she made this record with. Yeah, no, I, I, I completely yeah. agree. Like her, her yeah. best stuff, like the title song and, yeah. and the, the couple of songs there near the end of the record. I think the second half of the record probably overall is a little stronger. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it should be, uh, she should have like a, I don't know if, I mean, obviously the guy is a musician or whatever, but uh, you would think that her muse would be less of a bonehead. Yeah, Uh, I know. And, and again, uh, I would say folks, if you go to Spotify or go to YouTube, uh, just as a uh, kind of the way that like you like to watch car crash videos or snuff videos, uh, go ahead and listen to breathe you uh, spelled like it sounds by my idea and just marvel at the just ridiculousness of it. (laughs) Uh, And the fact that they had the balls to go there on record. Uh, So that's great. But otherwise, yeah, Lily Konensberg, I have hope for. I'd love to see what she could do uh, by herself uh, with a more professional crew and and, uh, more serious collaborators. So uh, a lot of potential, a lot of potential on this record. So at its heart, our show captures the kind of windy, bendy, yet somehow organized conversation that you would have heard in a living room in Astoria, Queens, back in 2000 and commits it to quote-unquote tape. I now live outside of Houston and Arturo lives in South Korea. So we are a worldwide affair, which means we truly do try to rock your world. Anyway, on the Curmudgeon Rock Report, we do not do hot takes. We do honest takes. And we strive for the kind of depth and staying power that makes us just as relevant two years from now as it does today. We like to say we host the podcast made just for you. This belongs to you. Well then, who are you? You are the rock geek iconoclastic outsider looking for safe haven in a world where rock no longer predominates. Well, it sure as heck does on the Curmudgeon Rock Report. We not only celebrate the music, we live its majesty in full color and at full force. And we'd like to think that there's a good chance you'll learn some stuff you never knew before along the way. Think we're full of crap? Drop us a line at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. Have your own passionate thoughts? Become a member of our invite-only curmudgeonly community on Facebook at facebook.com slash curmudgeonrock. And be sure to tell a friend or two or three about the wacky dudes imploring you to listen to lost and forgotten albums and complaining about just how bad British rock critics are these days. Really, they, they really are that bad. Now, let's return to our regularly scheduled programming. So, here we go, 1994. A lot in rock music happened. A lot of good, 
some bad. Um, but we got to start with the obvious starting point for 1994. Chris, what is it? Yeah, it's it's basically the day that um, that shook uh, the foundation of rock. Uh, nothing has, has been the same since. Uh, it was the day and the uh, occasion and the moment where Kurt Cobain, uh, the uh, leader uh, and uh, genius behind Nirvana, uh, committed suicide. And uh, it's still something that affects me uh, pretty deeply, which I will talk about uh, starting now. Um, the death of Kurt Cobain, it still hurts. Uh, there are many idols in rock and roll, but few heroes. Uh, Kurt Cobain is mine. Uh, his suicide was shattering uh, to me 28 years ago, um, and it's still hard for me to revisit it, uh, to study it, and even to contemplate it. Um, how so? Well, I still have my copy of the June 2nd, 1994 issue of Rolling Stone, RS-683. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, I subscribed to Rolling Stone for about 10 years, and I'm a natural pack rat, so I would collect them and not throw them out, and they would accumulate it over the years. When I uh, moved out of Syracuse to start my adult life, I kept those magazines. When I was about to go to Phoenix, it was time to discard of them. Uh, that issue was the one I could not uh, discard. Uh, so that uh, that issue that I'm talking about, it still stands up prominently here uh, in my office. It's uh, usually in the top. Uh, back row of the desk rack uh, on it here in my office. Uh, every day I work in here or I manage my finances or just fart around the internet. And every time I sit here and just look slightly to the left, Kurt Cobain stares back at me. As we record this episode, Kurt is looking up at me as he lays flat just to my right. Uh, it's real. It's a black and white photo. Just describe the photo. It's a black and white photo. And it's a close-up in which Cobain tilts his head slightly to gaze directly into the camera. I see those intense eyes, and I see that guy who may just be thinking sort of deeply, but likely is subtly revealing the hurt and exhaustion he lived with nearly every day. I see myself in that photo, and I feel a little bit of rock and roll catharsis every time I look over there. In my world, the imprint of Kurt Cobain literally still lives, which is why it really, really does hurt to talk about his suicide by 20-gauge shotgun on April 5th, 1994. The discovery of his body at his Seattle home uh, three days later, the breaking of that news, and the slow realization that it really happened and that Nirvana's revolutionary frontman was gone all of that was just completely shattering. Uh, actually, it, uh, Arturo, it was you that called yeah. me that morning yeah. and said, I, I think Cobain killed himself, and I turned on MTV. Couldn't believe it. Uh, yeah, I, I, I heard it on the radio. I was playing cards with a friend mm -hmm. of mine in, in, in his dorm room, uh, our, our buddy Seth, actually. And uh, I heard it on the radio. We were listening to the radio and playing cards, and that came on. And then I went straight to my room, to, to my phone. This is before the days of smartphones and cell phones. Yes. <laughs> we yeah. had landline phones back then. So I went to my dorm room and called you on the phone. <laughs> yeah, and, and I was I was literally uh, befuddled. I didn't believe you in it. I didn't actually yeah. get to MTV till 40 minutes later. And then I, I, I found out. And uh, yeah, um, day I don't care to remember. Uh, it's one of those things. So it was a grunge movement. Uh, so 
this grunge movement that was propelled not by just great music, but also by a palpable sense of hope uh, by that act, it convulsed into an ugly reality uh, in an instant. Uh, We should not have been too shocked. Uh, Stories Mm. of overdoses and marital violence, uh, rumors of potential band dissolution, and analyses of the dark lyrics of In Utero, uh, the band's album from the previous fall, had been percolating for months. Uh, Cobain's much-publicized trip to a hospital in Italy in March of 1994 after mixing champagne with Rohypnol uh, Mm. was a sneak preview of what was on the horizon uh, in my Rolling Stone uh, issue there. Neil Strauss uh, reported that Cobain had actually taken 50 Rohypnols. So uh, any reports calling that an accident were way, way, way off base. Uh, Even so, uh, when Kurt left us, uh, the past, uh, the present, and the future all seemed to shift on a dime. Uh, The guy seemed to understand what would happen culturally after he left. Uh, Quoting uh, the Neil Young lyric, uh, it's better to burn out than fade away in his suicide note, turned out to be a prescient reference. Uh, He left us all to wonder. Uh, what the hell just happened? Uh, what the hell happens next? And what will it all mean? Shit, will it mean anything? Uh, well, it did, and it still does. Uh, the brilliant writer Anthony DeCurtis uh, was tasked with capturing the weight of that moment in this Rolling Stone issue of mine at the beginning of an entri- entire tribute section uh, dedicated to Cobain. Uh, it's fascinating to read it in these now yellowing pages and to realize how well DeCurtis was actually able to articulate this so, so soon after the cataclysm. So let me quote from the, the very end of this little essay that he wrote. Quote, at 27 years old, Kurt Cobain wanted to disappear, to erase himself, to become nothing. That his suicide was so, that it so utterly lacked ambivalence is its most terrifying aspect. It all comes down to a stillness at the end of a long chaos a young man sitting alone in a room, looking out a window in Puget Sound, getting high, writing his goodbyes, pulling a trigger. You can imagine the silence shattering and then collecting itself in the way that water breaks for and then envelops a diver, diver, absorbing forever the life of Kurt Cobain. Mm -hmm. Uh, Coming back to me now, Cobain's legacy remains entrenched in that enveloped silence. His extraordinary musical output, his understated bravery, uh, his ability to translate all of his pain and alienation into an accessible art, uh, and most of all, his relatability. Uh, They were all gifts, and they possess a meaning that no one, absolutely no one, has duplicated for me, at least in popular music. And now, uh, all that meaning and the legacy that is Kurt Cobain is magically incredibly touching the youth of America here in 2022. And Art, you didn't know this until I pointed it out earlier in the week. Yeah. Uh, now, uh, back in March, the big budget superhero flick, The Batman, uh, Robert Pattinson as the as the Batman this time, uh, it uses Nirvana's uh, gorgeous visceral ballad, Something in the Way, as part of its soundtrack. I guess it's in the movie a couple of, of times. Uh, now, I haven't seen the film, but the use of the song must have really touched a lot of people because, because back- it's, a, it's a hit now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because back in March, uh, something in the way was a hit on the rock download charts. Like literally there was one week it was number three on billboards, rock download charts, which is amazing. 
And uh, just last week, I'm uh, driving. I'm actually coming back from my dentist's office, and I'm uh, turning onto the highway. And uh, that song slinked its way out of my speakers in the car as the local rock radio station uh, spun it into rotation. Uh, I nearly had to pull over. Uh, I felt that deep. I felt it that deeply in that moment. I, I miss Kurt Cobain incredibly, uh, but now have further proof. uh, His music will live on uh, for a long, long time. Somewhere out there, he's probably becoming some 17 year old kids, uh, rock and roll hero too. May that kid be staring, staring back at Kurt 30 years down the road as well. Arturo, uh, what, what's your thought on Cobain? Yeah. The only thing I can, yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, um, Nirvana, changed the way I listen to music and the way I listen to rock music. And, you know, Kurt Cobain is, you know, one of the central figures. Um, I mean, my all time favorite bands, Nirvana is in my top five easily. Yeah. And I, I, and I, and I do really do think objectively they are one of the 10 greatest American bands of all time, right up there with the velvets and the beach boys and the stooges and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. But here's the thing I want the, the, the only, the only real point I want to make to add to yours, which you already you did a good job of uh, making is that a lot of people then and now think, okay, Cobain's death. That's the end, the end of an era, the end of everything, the end of blah, blah, bullshit. Um, Cobain's death was a, a defining moment right smack in the middle of the fourth golden age of rock. Yeah. You know, it's, a, it's like a demarcation it, line. Like it's a said, demarcation the- point. Yeah. yeah. You know, so, so what ha- everything from 91 to 94 Cobain dies from 94 onward, um, yeah, uh, mainstream rock got shitty with all the post-grunge and and, 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 on the, and the crappy alternative rock wannabe. But a lot of the stuff in the indie and the underground got better <laughs> um, from 94 onward up until the end of the 90s. Uh, and we're going to talk about that a lot in this episode and the episodes in the future to come. So um, I, I just want to you know, hammer the point home. It is not the end of an era when, when he died. It was a defining moment in the middle of a great, greater era, actually. Now uh, that we started off with the uh, with the obvious uh, thing, let's get back into the, the brighter, uh, sunnier, uh, more sort of uh, inspiring uh, rock and roll uh, moments of 1994. And I, I guess moving forward, the logical musical starting point is to talk about uh, Britpop. And to talk about uh, the in, unquestionably the biggest breakout band in the world of 1994, Oasis, and their arch nemeses in Blur. Uh, Arturo, take us through the Britpop explosion. Yeah. Um, as we mentioned, Kurt Cobain's body was found on April 8th, 1994. But according to the autopsy report, the gunshot wound occurred on April 5th. If there's ever been proof, like I just said earlier, that his death wasn't the end of an era, but the signifier of a change from the first half of the fourth golden age of rock to the second half, it's the fact that just six days after he died, Oasis released their debut single, Supersonic. And three weeks after he died, Blur released their epical album, Park Life. The times they were a changing indeed. Um, it's hard for American rock music fans to appreciate how much of a breath of fresh air the Britpop movement was for British rock music fans, especially after the doom and gloom austerity of the Margaret Thatcher era. Uh, for as awesome 
and as cathartic and as visceral as grunge and the American alternative rock wave was at the time, let's face it, it was all a bit dark. <laughs> you know, uh, I adore Alice in Chains, but I can see how some people would see their lumbering riffs and cynical pessimism as a bit overwhelming. I love Pearl Jam, but I can see how many people would find Eddie Vedder's anti-rock star stance as whiny and a bit preachy. Uh, no one reveres Soundgarden more than me, but I can see how some people would find Soundgarden's metal postures as a bit too macho, a bit too stiff, and maybe a little too cliche. Um, however, here we had a wave of bands who were unabashed in their ambition, had no problem with the trappings of rock stardom, were charming and charismatic, and produced music full of bright colors, lyrical wit, inventive and creative assimilation of their influences, and most important of all, irresistible melodies and hooks that poured out of these bands, even when they were at their most artsy or their artsiest. Uh, we touched on some of these groups on the previous episode, but for now, let's focus on the two biggest and best bands of this movement and their landscape-changing records that were just as important to changing British music and pop culture as Nirvana and Pearl Jam did for U.S. music and pop culture. I mean, they were the Nirvana and Pearl Jam of the, of the U.K., really. Um, let's start with Blur. Uh, on the last episode, we touched on how their album, uh, Modern Life is Rubbish, from 93, effectively got the Britpop ball rolling with their brilliant tapestry of new wave pop, edgy post-punk noise, and kinksian melodic pop and a very British-centric lyrical perspective critiquing modernity and the, the Americanization of a British life. They took this formula and fine-tuned it to a sharp knife's edge and then bolstered it with amphetamine glee and energy <laughs> with park, park Life, one of the greatest examples of pure pop rock ever put to tape. Um, you have the giddy synth pop of Girls and Boys with its... If, if, if you if you don't know it, you have heard it. Yes. <laughs> uh, with its tongue-twisting chorus of girls who want boys, who like boys to be girls, who do boys like their girls, who do girls like their boys. Um, it is without a doubt one of the greatest album opening tracks of all time. Yes. And, a, and it was a massive UK top five hit, even reaching number 59 in the US Billboard pop chart. Um, you got the ecstatic glam rock stomp of the title track, another top 10 UK hit, which is a scathing indictment of a oblivious middle-class contentment. Uh, and then, you know, the sharp acerbic lyrical attacks and even sharper exercises and exquisite classic songcraft continue with tracks such as Tracy Jack's End of a Century, Jubilee and Magic America. Uh, listening to individual tracks on streaming services uh, doesn't do the experience of listening to this album justice. Uh, yeah. From start from start to finish, listening to Park Life in its entirety is one of the most exhilarating and awe-inspiring ex experiences one could ever have listening to a rock and roll or pop record. Um, not only was it a huge commercial success, it was a critical sensation, a genuine pop culture phenomenon in the UK and Europe and stands as one of the essential albums of the fourth golden age of rock. Chris? Yeah, it's one of the few of these Britpop records that you can say has a vision. 
Yeah. Like, like an, and a vision that holds up, like an actual vision that's actually unified. And I agree with you. Uh, there's a, a cohesiveness uh, to this uh, to this record. One of the other ones, by the way, is the one you're going to talk about next. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, definitely, maybe. But uh, you're right. Gr- Girls and Boys uh, is one of the best songs of the 90s and one of the defining songs of the 90s because it mixed that electro pop uh, with that rock sensibility and with that sort of cheeky or satirical uh, gender bending or this idea of, of uh, kind of like hitting convention uh, head on. And it is just perfect. Uh, Park life is like extends into that sort of Kingsian thing that they had yeah. with that, that, that little bit of a stomping riff and, yeah. and all of that. It's just um, David, Al- Damon Albarn and uh, Graham Coxon were, were definitely uh, visionaries and they, they were really inventive. And I will say this though, uh, for as pioneering uh, as they were and as great as they were, they were not as great as Oasis. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, that was the thing. They opened the door for Oasis. You arguably with modern life is rubbish. Yeah. And uh, again, you know, probably with, with this record, this record, what came out pretty close together with the, uh, about the same time is definitely maybe, didn't it? Uh, a few months before. A few months before. Okay. So, so this one was first out of the gate, correct? Yep. Yep. Okay. Yeah. And so uh, Blur might have set the tone, but, but Oasis just, uh, if, uh, let's just put it this way, uh, uh, Blur walked through the door with this, yeah. with this wonderful album. Yeah. Oasis kicked it the fuck down. Yeah. But definitely, maybe. So, yes. Bloody fucking Oasis, man. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Where do we start with the Gallagher brothers? Listen, dude, if you wanted to go into a laboratory, and create the perfect rock and roll Frankenstein monster of sound, look, attitude, charisma, songwriting skill, humor, self-importance, and melodic perfection. It would look and sound something like Oasis in the 1990s. Uh, How a gang, and make no mistake, these guys carried themselves like a gang. Uh, How a gang of working class yabos and troublemakers from the suburbs of Manchester, rose from obscurity to be Great Britain's biggest band and one of the biggest bands in the world and of the decade is one of rock and roll's greatest rags to riches stories. Um, Like guitarist and chief songwriter Noel Gallagher himself said in a noteworthy interview, if it weren't for music, he would have either been a drug dealer or a factory worker. (laughs) Uh, Younger brother and lead singer Liam Gallagher said in the excellent 2003 Britpop documentary Live Forever that before he decided to join a band and commit himself to music, he would steal people's lawnmowers and sell them in order to buy weed. (laughs) There you go. That's a living. (laughs) Uh, Oasis started life as a band called Rain and uh, bumped around the Manchester pub and club scene for a couple of years until Big Brother Noel joined the band and took over leadership and songwriting duties after a stint as a roadie for the Inspiral Carpets, a Happy Monday Stone Roses knockoff band. Uh, It wasn't long before Alan McGee, the head of top awesome indie label Creation Records, the home of the Jesus and Mary Chain, Primal Scream, Teenage Fan Club, and My Bloody Valentine. (laughs) Uh, He discovered the band at a club show in Glasgow, Scotland. Soon enough, Creation, with its major label distribution deal, put Oasis on the fast track to stardom and enormous success. And enormous success was inevitable, considering the band's sound and style. 
Beatlesque melodies, glam rock hooks, punk rock attitude and aggression, and perfectly crafted songwriting gelled into an irresistible and unstoppable rock candy mountain that was amped up to arena rock and eventually stadium rock uh, proportions. And then, of course, you had the personalities and the relationship of the Gallagher brothers themselves. <laughs> if, if there was anything funnier and more entertaining than hearing or reading about Liam and Noel slagging other bands off, it was hearing or reading about Liam and Noel slagging each other off. Yeah, no question. <laughs> uh, their volatile chemistry was the fulcrum on which the band was supported. And to be honest, it was a huge part of what made them compelling and appealing. Um, if you thought Ray and Dave Davies of the Kinks had a toxic relationship, they had nothing on the Gallagher boys. Nope. <laughs> uh, their clashes and their hilarious interviews were godsends for the music press and the mainstream media. However, none of this would matter if their debut album, Definitely Maybe, wasn't one of the most perfectly realized and greatest debut albums of all time. Uh, like Blur's Park Life, Definitely Maybe is one of the most jaw-droppingly thrilling experiences one could ever have with a rock and roll record. Uh, the singles from this album glisten with timeless power and beauty, and the album tracks would be any other band's best singles. Yep. Uh, Cigarettes and Alcohol steals its riff from T-Rex's Get It On, but oh, so, yeah. fuck, so fucking what? It rocks yeah. harder and with more purpose than Mark Boland could ever muster. And its lyrics celebrating alcohol and drug debauchery made it a bona fide rock and roll anthem and an antidote to much of the sourpuss nature of a much of pre-Oasis British rock. And uh, uh, Rod Stewart never covered uh, T-Rex. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Shaker Maker steals its melody from the hillside singers. I'd like to teach the world to sing, <laughs> which was used for a Coca-Cola advertisement in 1971. But so fucking what? <laughs> uh, in Noel Gallagher's hands, it's appropriation as recontextualization, re uh, taking something corny and making it badass rock and roll with an ungodly sexy groove to boot. Uh, Live Forever, the track, is one of the most glorious and powerful songs in the entire fourth golden age of rock with a melody, song construction, guitar solo, and vocal performance so perfect you would think God himself was looking over Noel's shoulder when he wrote it. Um, also, like Blur's Park Life, Definitely Maybe was a colossal commercial and critical success debuting at number one on the UK albums chart and making Oasis a pop cultural phenomenon and giving them the status of a band of a generation. Yeah. In my mind, it's without a doubt one of the 10 greatest debut albums of all time, one of the essential albums of the fourth golden age of rock, and objectively one of the 500 greatest records ever made. Anyone who disagrees is just fucking wrong. Uh, now, now, Chris, before you go into what you think of Definitely Maybe, before yes. you go in there, let me note that the immense twin successes of this album alongside Blur's Park Life actually planted the seeds for a rivalry that would explode the following year. Um, Blur were a middle class, by American standards, upper middle class band that had kicked around for years before they finally made it big and became generational figureheads. For someone as notoriously competitive and ambitious as lead singer, chief songwriter Damon Alburn was during this time, it must have rankled his balls 
that just just as his moment in the spotlight arrived, here come a gang of undereducated working class blokes from the North Country who, in the course of one year, not only nudged themselves into the same spotlight, but they were also arguably more popular and captured the and captured the music media's attention much more so than Auburn's band of nerdy London art school kids. Yep. Uh, this class divide was at the heart of the legendary Oasis Blur feud, which would reach a boiling point the next year. But that will be talked about in the next episode to be continued on that topic. Now, hint. Chris, yes. hint, hint. Yeah. Chris, are you more definitely than maybe with Oasis? Uh Yes, I, I am definitely more maybe uh, with Oasis. De- definitely, definitely more definitely, you mean? Yeah, more definitely. <laughs> and, 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 yes, yes, exactly. Blah, 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 blah. Uh, and I'm definitely more down with this record uh, than the subsequent Oasis records. And let me tell you why. Uh, there's really, this album, to me, if you look at this album and the next one, there's it's proof that there is a difference between brash and ambitious. Yeah. Uh, this album is brash. Uh, they had a lot to say. They knew what they, they knew how they wanted to do it. They went in and they bashed it down uh, a unified vision. It all sounds like it springs from the same place. Uh, and it, you could just see them like recording this. Okay. Now let's launch into the next one. It's almost like it's just this continuous nonstop, uh, block of intensity, uh, just all unified. Uh, one of the great, uh, first 45 seconds of any album ever made with, with rock and roll star. Yeah. Uh, and getting in. And like you said, you know, uh, Gallagher, Noel Gallagher had this gift for keep little interpolations yeah. of, other, of other people's music. I mean, most famously, you know, don't look back in anger where he steals the opening notes of Imagine. Yeah. Uh, but uh, be that as it may, he he just great songwriter. And they just had a, a singular bash. I yeah. don't know what you would call it. There's this bash that they laid down in one direction with uh, Liam's voice going the other direction uh, and makes for a really uh, interesting juxtaposition, like stuff like supersonic, which is fantastic. Uh, like you said, cigarettes and alcohol. Yeah. So, so what it steals from banging on, but it's fucking awesome. Uh, and then, you know, live forever, which was, I think the biggest hit on this record and yeah. uh, just pretty much a, like a, a perfect uh, swaggering uh, yeah. mid tempo uh, rock song. Now, I say this is a brash record because they knew they wanted to rule the world. They went in there, bashed it out, and they did it. Well, they get huge within the span of a year and a half, uh, two years. And probably, I've read at some point, they were the biggest band since the Beatles. Uh, as, as, as far as record sales, they were, they were approaching that. What's the story of Morning Glory, which we'll talk about more in the next episode, yeah. in our 1995 episode. We, we, we don't want to go too much into that. Yeah, but, and, um, yeah. But, but, yeah, but I'll just mention it, and just to set that up, that I think that because they got that big, that all of a sudden now they're in the same sentence as the Beatles. That's yeah. when Noel, I think Noel said to himself, you know what? I think I can out Beatles the Beatles. And that was kind of where... Oasis started to get a little bit goofy, but yeah. for this time in 1994, at the very beginning, when, like you said, they're the young blokes uh, from working class Manchester, and they have this sort of uh, they have the singular uh, mission. Yeah, they were they were a band on mission. They went in there and they did it, and they rocked as hard as anybody ever had. And it's just a really singular, really unified, and just like you said about Blur's, Blur's Park Life, it's a testament to the uh, monumental power of an album made on purpose. Yeah, 
Absolutely. Yep. Now, speaking of albums made with a purpose, oh boy, do we have one coming up. <laughs> yeah, uh, made on purpose, with a purpose, for a purpose, and oh boy, yeah, it, it is something. Uh, now, we, yeah, we go from Oasis, now we're going to Nine Inch Nails. Uh, most of us of a certain age, when we think back to 1994, I mean, obviously we think of Cobain and Grunge and all that, but the next thing a lot of us, at least those of us who were in college, at that point, our minds will immediately flash to Nine Inch Nails and the Downward Spiral and uh, really kind of represented a movement where the sort of industrial, uh, sort of dark uh, thinking and aesthetic and style and sound uh, just sort of uh, rammed its way uh, through the wall uh, into, the, into the mainstream. And uh, Trent Reznor was really uh, the guy uh, who did it. Uh, and so to talk about uh, Mr. Reznor and about Nine Inch Nails a bit, uh, Trent Reznor uh, is a, a masterful, masterful maker of rock mythology or rock myth. On tape, his Nine Inch Nails persona represents an angry, tortured goth god who wants to fuck you like an animal and flay himself in acts of self and not-so-self-torture. The Downward Spiral is an astonishing telling of its protagonist's descent into inner violence that manifests itself in disturbing outer ways. Uh, there's plenty of torture for everyone on this record. Uh, <laughs> the album grows darker and weirder and more twisted over the course of its 65 minutes until it ends with a startling, elegiac expression of menace, the oddly moving and beautiful hurt. Uh, you know it's beautiful when Johnny Cash can cover it and make it into a Johnny Cash song. You know you've 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 done something special. To this day, uh, the album stands as one of rock's great star makers. Uh, nothing quite like it came before, and nothing even remotely close to it has come afterwards. However, uh, we need to look behind the dark arts and remar remarkably pulverizing aesthetic that catalyzed the cult-like following that made being awkwardly miscast in black clothing cool back there in 1994. Yeah. When we do that, what we find is amazing craftsmanship. It took a whole hell of a lot of work for Trent Reznor to sound that out of his mind. It is no accident that the drum programming is tailored so finely it practically functions as a co-vocalist on these songs. Uh, seriously, those Tommy Gun beats that propel the verses on I Do Not Want This uh, make Trent's point much better than his screaming on the choruses. And the gigantic clangs and bangs of Big Man with a Gun masturbate with more force and even harder, wink, wink, than Reznor's sadomasochistic lyrics. The album never stops working because Reznor is a, never, is a guy who never stopped working and still hasn't, even as he has shaken off the dissatisfaction with the rock, uh, rock limelight and more importantly, alcoholism. Uh, in reality, uh, Reznor is not the S&M god in black contact lenses with a drill-like dildo in his left hand. He sure sounds like here on the Downward Spiral. He actually is the hardworking son of Western Pennsylvania who cut his teeth in the pronounced non-glamour of Cleveland, Ohio. I think <laughs> the only one that would see that as a rock and roll beacon might be Jan Wenner. But I don't. <laughs> uh, now, in the course of revisiting the downward spiral uh, and researching the Reznor mystique for this episode, I uncovered a 1995 article from People magazine uh, back when People was doing serious journalism 
that traced Reznor's origins as a polite yet driven drama and band high school geek. Uh, the story, uh, it uses a charmingly straightforward old school reportage voice, like very neutral. And in it, you know, he, it quotes people in his life and in his background. And uh, I'll share a little bit of this, uh, this article. It quotes uh, Reznor's adoring grandfather. Mm. And so reading from the article now, uh, quote, he was always a good kid, unquote, said his grandfather. <laughs> he was always a good kid. They, all, yeah. they always have that. <laughs> yeah, no, but, but it, it, this is kind of funny. He was always a good kid, says his grandfather. <laughs> his grandfather, <laughs> Bill. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay, you're making me laugh. Uh, <laughs> says his grandfather, Bill Clark, 84, a semi-retired furniture salesman, as he pets Rusty, the chocolate Labrador Reznor gave him. And uh, uh-huh. he, re- he recalls idyllic days spent cane pole fishing with his grandson, a Boy Scout who loved to skateboard, build model planes, and play the piano. Quote, music, wow. was, his, music was his life from the time he was a wee boy. He was so gifted. Uh, now, other interviews from the same article uh, aren't quite as corny as that one. Now, now take this remembrance and insight from an early uh, studio music mentor of Reznor's. Uh, going back to the article, quote, after a year studying computer engineering at nearby Allegheny College in Pennsylvania, Reznor moved to Cleveland, where he played in a succession of bar bands while working as a handyman in the Right Track studio. It has since been named, uh, renamed Midcount, Midtown Recording. Quote, he is so focused on everything he does, says Midtown own, Midtown's owner, Bart Coster. When that guy waxed the floor, it looked great. During the studio's off hours, Coster let Reznor work on his first album, Pretty Hate Machine. Quote, how could I possibly stand in this guy's way, says Coster. It wasn't costing me anything, just a little wear on my tape heads. As for Reznor's pain-driven stage act, Coster believes, quote, it's planned, but it is not contrived. He's pulling that stuff out from inside somewhere. You cannot fake that delivery. And therein lies, and this is me again, and therein lies insight into what makes the downward spiral so great. It is a raw, bluntly authentic statement from a guy with the talent to translate it on tight tape with such musical inventiveness. Uh, Reznor is one of those guys um, on the top end of rock and roll, much like Prince or David Bowie, who could hear all the contours of their emotional fibers and translate them in the music. Uh, in this case, it is a gift that sure sounds like a curse. And boy, is it organized, by the way. Uh, if you don't pay attention, you may miss it. The hypnotic sequence of notes that end the all-time great single closer also finds its way into the murkier, more ambient, more nightmarish landscape of the album's title track towards the end of the record. Uh, the notes that make up a great, clean earworm in one spot portend, that portend insanity's doorstep in another. Uh, there's just a lot to absorb here, and uh, 28 years later, apparently, uh, that has not been long enough for me to unlock all of this uh, album's mysteries. But anyway, Reznor was and still is a subversive superhero, uh, long live the downward spiral. Now, Arturo, when we were planning this episode, uh, you m- mentioned a pretty interesting comparison that I hadn't readily thought of, that yeah. this record kind of mines the same territory as The Wall by Pink Floyd. Uh, and, exp- does, ex- and, and does it much better. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I expand on that for us, why don't you? Well, no, the whole idea of just of, of, of going into yourself as a, be, as a result of self-loathing 
and um, just just seeing the world around you, hating it, hating your seeing your reflection in the world and just withdrawing into yourself and cutting yourself off from everything else. Mm-hmm. Those kinds of lyrical themes that was in Pink Floyd's The Wall. That's definitely in this album. Um, I think this album, first of all, I think Pink Floyd's The Wall is one of the most overrated albums in the history of recorded music. But on top of that, I think this album is better than that. It does a better job. Um, you actually feel more sympathy for the character, quote unquote, that Reznor is putting forth in this, much more so than in The Wall, because in The Wall, it's basically Roger Waters being a spoiled brat rock star who has the audacity to compare himself to a Nazi leader. You yeah. Know, fuck that. You know, Reznor's not that tacky, you know, um, and, and, and I think he's a little more um, I think he's a little I think he's a little more emotional depth than um, Waters ever had, um, especially in The Wall. And musically, I think this album is more inventive. It's more mm-hmm. original. And here's another thing about Reznor that I think people need to realize. He's known as this sonic mastermind, brilliant musician, great producer, great sonic architect. His production skills are unparalleled. But the reason why Trent Reznor and Nine Inch Nails are in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, at the bottom of it all, the dude was a fucking great songwriter. He absolutely the was. The dude wrote great songs that had yeah. re- that sometimes the lyrics weren't always good, but sometimes they were great. And he had an unbelievable sense of melody yes. and hooks and even melodic invention. The guy had great chord progressions. He was a great songwriter, b- 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 above everything else. Producer, musician, as a composer, he could write fucking great songs. Yeah. That, that is at the core of what makes Nine Inch Nails great. Yeah. Well, speaking of great songwriting, holy moly, was 1994 awash with incredible and in some cases era-defining albums uh, and then we're transitioning from over-the-top mainstream success of Nine Inch Nails to slightly more underground, um, the American indie and alternative underground. Mm-hmm. And a couple of these albums actually did cross over to the mainstream. So mm-hmm. uh, for this next segment, which I uh, we're going to do a rundown of the cream of this wonderful crop of American alternative and indie rock from 1994. Yeah, it really was now, a watershed moment for the indie rock uh, uh, thing, for sure. Yeah, it totally was. And we're going to start in Boise, Idaho, which uh, isn't known for much besides potatoes. But if there's anything else this city can lay claim to, it's being the home of one of the curmudgeon rock reports, all-time favorite bands, the amazing Built to Spill. Uh, essentially a vehicle for singer-guitarist Doug Marsh. The original BTS uh, made waves in the indie underground with There's Nothing Wrong With Love, released in the fall of 94. And the mass critical adoration, both in the US and the UK, that this album garnered, eventually earned them a major label deal with Warner Brothers. So what was the big deal about? Well, Built to Spill had a startlingly original sound that welded pavement-esque, twisty, winding song structures with guitar jams that brought to mind both Neil Young and Dinosaur Jr. and brought it all home with the trippy, cosmic majesty of Jane's Addiction. Uh, A major label budget and an expanded band lineup would flesh out Marsh's vision in the future, 
in, and in future albums of spellbinding beauty and power. But with There's Nothing Wrong With Love, you get a low-budget, lo-fi snapshot of one of American indie rock's true national treasures. Chris? Yeah, a uh, great quote that I read from uh, March a while ago when they were talking about uh, the pressure he felt when he, they were making the, the follow-up to There's Nothing Wrong With Love Perfect From Now On, which is their major label debut. Uh, when he's, he's talking about There's Nothing Wrong With Love, that he, he says it's, it's the last record that we'll ever make or that we ever made that we weren't sure if anybody was going to hear. Mm. And he said that makes a huge difference. And you can tell because there's an innocence and a, a quirkiness and a, I don't know, there's just almost like a romanticism to this record that he never approached again. There's like a, I don't know, like a, it's almost like a, a charm. There's a, a, almost like a, a boyishness or a wistfulness to this record or a, a, a magic. Yeah. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know. I don't know the right word. It's like whimsical. I think it's the yeah. right word uh, that runs that runs through this. And so, yeah, you had some of you had that Neil Young stomp. You had some of that. Um, uh, Marsh is right there with Jay Mascus as a guitar or virtuoso. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, sort of a brilliant uh, guitar uh, maestro. But one of the reasons uh, one of the things I love about that record is yeah, you have the uh, like the really quirky and great pop songs like car and big dipper, but the proggy stuff on it. Yeah. Uh, my favorite song on that record forevermore is stab, which is the yeah. album closer, yeah. which is uh, a, an intentional uh, fit of, of progressive rock, but done in a way that manages to keep that charm and uh, that brilliance and that sort of um, hopefulness, uh, I guess, is another word I'm looking for here for this record. It's a very hopeful, very whimsical, yeah. uh, very fun record that uh, basically comes out of Marsh jamming uh, in his in his basement with uh, with his buddies, and yeah. uh, and it's and it started something really special. Yeah, I want to see movies of my dreams. Indeed, as yes, the, the, the yeah. lyrics from the song Car. Yeah, and and from the from the same song, if I don't die or worse, I'm going I'm going to need a nap. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Marsh was very underrated wordsmith. Yeah. Now, from one wordsmith and great songwriter to another, indie rock '94 continues with "Guided by Voices." Now, since the late 1980s, this band, which is essentially a vehicle for singer songwriter Robert Pollard has released approximately 8,000 albums that have been culled <laughs> from the approximately 500,000 songs that uh, Pollard has written. Of course, I'm yeah. exaggerating, but that's just to underline how prolific GBV, for better or for worse, are. Um, one of this podcast's curmudgeonly tenets is that there's such a thing as being overly prolific and there's something to be said for quality control. And more often than not, Pollard fails at this Mm -hmm. time and time again. Um, Nevertheless, the 1990s were the peak years for Guided by Voices with their very best albums coming out in a year-by-year succession. Unlike the three shitty albums per year the band has been cranking out since 2019. Pretty much, Um, yeah. The best and most importantly, the most consistent of these is 1994's B-1000. It is a rarity in a Guided by Voices discography uh, in that there isn't a wasted track on it, uh, nor is the album riddled with multiple silly 30-second song fragments that, that taint 
so many uh, Guided by Voices albums. Uh, listening to this album is like getting a crash course in Pollard's retro rock obsessions with mid-1960s pop, late 1960s psychedelia, early 1970s progressive rock, and late 1970s punk rock, all filtered through a lo-fi 1990s indie rock prism and attitude. Yep, uh, It's one of the few GBV albums that commands start-to-finish attention. Is one of the essential albums of the fourth golden age of rock and one of the greatest American indie rock albums of all time. Chris? Yeah, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. Basically, it's uh, Bob Pollard saying, hey, those guys made all those albums I like in a garage. Hey, we'll make an album in a garage too. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's kind, of, that's kind of the way it sounds. And so, yeah, he, he wears his uh, influences on his sleeves. Uh, and this is one of those records. It's 20 tracks in 37 minutes. And as you said, even the 33 second song or the 48 second song are real songs. Yeah. And so uh, there's a charm to that. But there's also a couple classics on here. I mean, the most well-known song on this record is I Am a Scientist, uh, which mm. actually was a modest hit even back then. I mean, it got above ground. Um, you know, it wasn't just, you know, sort of the lo-fi. It wasn't just the intelligentsia snobs that were getting guided by voices at that point. They did have a moment in some sun uh, back then. I'm also I also like the uh, album opener, uh, Hardcore UFOs. Yeah, uh, that that that's just kind of a fun song. But like you said, it's just it's it's cohesive. Uh, it's cohesive. And there's, you know, an actual statement here. Uh, you know, Pollard is uh, one of uh, indie rock's most uh, famous and or notorious alcoholics. And so yeah. I think that's he may be productive, but boy, is he sloppy. Uh, but this is, this is one instance where he wasn't sloppy and it all worked and it was cohesive and, and God bless, uh, Bob Power for making, uh, uh, this record B thousand. Right. Indie rock 94 continues, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> from the opening slide guitar riff, everyone knows Beck's immortal slacker anthem loser. It's surreal lyrics and it's anti anthem chorus. Soy un perdedor, I'm a loser baby, so why don't you kill me, right? Mm -hmm. Everyone knows that. It was a massive hit that hit the top 10 of the U.S. pop chart and charted high in several other countries. What got lost in all the fever over Loser is that the album that launched it, Mellow Gold, is a fantastic record in its own right and a bona fide classic of this era. Uh, Beck would show off his dizzying eclecticism a couple of years later with Odalay one of the greatest albums ever made. But he already shows quite a bit of it here on Mellow Gold. Um, you have the down and dirty funk of Beer Can. You have the Kinksian melodic pop of Nightmare Hippie Girl. You have grungy, noisy assault rock of uh, in Motherfucker. And then you have the Dylan-esque folk of Pay No Mind, where Beck hilariously reflects on his decisions uh, to cross over and sign with a major record label. Beck would go on to make better albums. Hell, he even had a better album this very year. We'll mm -hmm. talk about that later. Um, but Mellow Gold is a perfect representation of Beck's roots, influences, and how he metastasized it all in a compelling and original package. Chris? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I I, I think, honestly, I think it's the weakest uh, of his records. I mean, if you go between uh, 94 and 08, I think it's the weakest of the records. But... Uh, great single uh, with Loser and uh, that eclecticism that you mentioned, it's kind of like, uh, you know, Beck just sort of uh, following his own muse and kind of yeah. fo following his own fancy and, and, and sort of dabbling and, and dibbling 
uh, into all of his influences and, and the stuff he likes. And uh, I think that seeking out the Dust Brothers for Odelay and then seeking them that back out with Guero is like a perfect meeting of minds. Yeah. That, like, you know, that Beck had that sort of folk rock style and that he was able to filter it through those guys. Uh, those yeah. guys is like weird kind of uh, collage, uh, collage-ish uh, shtick. Yeah was really good. But, you know, again, this is where it started. Uh, Loser, uh, you know, as it, I always like to mention it, it is built on a Dr. John sample. And so, <laughs> and so like an, an indie rock classic that's built, that's built on a uh, Dr. John uh, slide guitar part. That's, yeah. all, that's all right by me. So there, <laughs> there you go. All right. Up next, Indie Rock 94 continues with Weezer. Yeah, it's it's hard not to imagine Weezer as one of the most revered institutions in rock and roll, which is what they have been for the past 20 years or so. Mm-hmm. However, in 1994 and going into 95, they were just one of many bands riding the alternative rock wave on MTV and on the radio uh, with their self-titled debut album now referred to as the Blue Album because they have like what? four or five self-titled albums in their discography by now. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Weezer nevertheless stood out from the pack. Yes, their sound was heavily indebted to the Pixies and Nirvana, sometimes embarrassingly so, mm-hmm. but they brought levity to the mix with sunny Beach Boys-ish melodies and vocal harmonies. Um, there was also a naive romantic yearning to singer-guitarist Rivers Cuomo's lyrics and voice that had nothing to do with the irony that so many bands uh, at the time dealt with. They had massive rock radio hits with the very, very Pixies-sounding Undone, the sweater song, and the anthemic sing-along Say It Ain't So. But it was the cheeky, insanely catchy Buddy Holly that catapulted them to the front line of rock stardom. Uh, The video was inspired by the old TV show Happy Days, Uh, It was ubiquitous on MTV, and the song hit the top 20 of the Billboard pop chart. Uh, The Blue Album as a whole has aged very well in that now countless bands have hailed it as an influence. It isn't just one of the essential albums of the 1990s. It's now rightly regarded as one of the greatest albums ever made. Chris? Uh, Yeah, I love that record. Uh, When I was in college, I adored that record. I think my junior year, I listened to it like pretty much every day. Uh, I love My Name is Jonas. I love In the Garage. Uh, And like you said, there was just kind of this silly, uh, almost goofy, uh, charming sweetness to what uh, Cuomo did in a lot of ways. And just sort of, um, I don't know, it's just he he wasn't too, too encumbered. It was goofy. You know, he, he was a Harvard kid. He was a, you know, he was a Harvard introvert. And uh, it kind of sounds like that, it, it, you know, produced by Rico Kasich. And so there's just these four kids from Boston having some fun. Uh, I think it, it's become obvious over the years. And I guess I'm sure we'll talk about this again in the 96 episode that uh, uh, Cuomo's uh, bandmate, Matt Sharp, made a huge difference. And, yeah. and that, like the two of them working together, uh, they had a thing that uh, and a and a tempo and a style that uh, Cuomo uh, by himself, while he's definitely influenced by power pop, pixies, and all that, it's not the same backbone. And now we're going to end this tour of indie rock '94 with the greatest of all the American indie rock bands and one of the five best American bands of the 1990s and one of their three best albums. Thereby, one of the best albums of the decade. Of course, we're talking about Pavement. Um, After the intentionally amateurish 
good music done bad lo-fi ethos of their immortal classic debut album, Slanted and Enchanted, Stephen Malkmus and his crew decided to open up the band's sound and clean it up as well. Uh, the result was the second masterpiece in Pavement's sterling discography, Crooked Rain, Crooked Rain. This is the closest Pavement ever came to cracking both MTV and rock radio with the shimmering, jangly, pop rock perfection of Cut Your Hair being a moderate hit. Uh, while that song was in many ways typically Malcolmusian, <laughs> with its scathing critique on bands jumping on the alt-rock bandwagon, Range Life reveals that the band could do wistful, beautiful country rock as well, yeah. and yet still manage to slag off Smashing Pumpkins and Stone Temple Pilots in the process. Oh yeah, in the lyric, in the lyrics, um, unfair shows pavement in full-on, reckless, abandoned punk mode and is one of the most rocked-out songs in their catalog. Um, a cleaner, crisper production meant that Malcolmus's songs, and Scott Kenberg's songs for that matter, could finally reveal themselves as the genuinely original, potent nuggets of invention that they really were. Um, the definitive American indie band of the 1990s, and arguably the definitive American indie band of all time, outdid themselves with Crooked Rain, Crooked Rain, an album that I still say endures as one of U.S. alternative rock's greatest artistic statements. Chris? Yeah, no, I agree. I think that it's 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 definitely aged well. I think that uh, it it's one of those albums that just grows on you over the years of how uh, solid, I think that um, in terms of consistency of, of melody and uh, just uh, prettiness, I think it's their prettiest record. Arturo and I now both use the same microphone, and what a darn good mic it is. If you've been with us for a while, you might notice we don't sound nearly as crappy or as clueless as we did in our first episode back there in January 2021. We're maturing, man. If you have any inkling to launch your own podcast, we recommend using the Ars Technica 2100X USB. It's a high-quality cardioid mic that helps limit ambient noise and echo and also gives a richness to your voice that you just won't get from a cheaper model. And its USB attachment allows you to record conveniently using your laptop and software like Zencaster, the excellent program we use to record ourselves natively from Texas and South Korea. It's as close to a super souped up XLR system you can get for about a hundred bucks. Find this Ars Technica gem on Amazon or perhaps ask a locally owned music store to send you in a more indie direction. All right. Well, now we went from the just barely, just under the, you know, on the cusp of mainstream indie rock bands to two massive giants of alternative rock uh, and two bands that changed their career trajectories. Uh, with these albums, with the two with the albums that these two bands came out in 1994, Chris, tell us about Pearl Jam and Soundgarden. Sure. Uh, so, you know, at this point, I mean, this is a continuation of uh, the segment that uh, began this episode on uh, Cobain's uh, suicide. Uh, so, you've got Pearl Jam and Soundgarden, otherwise known as Number Two and Number Three, uh, yeah. of the uh, superstar bands that uh, thrust uh, into uh, the limelight in the fall of 1991, uh, winter of 1992. Uh, now you have uh, this uh, opportunity to, they're in that spot where they be, can become undeniably huge, 
but it happens in different ways. I think that these two uh, uh, records, uh, you know, Soundgarden first and then Pearl Jam, it kind of tells the story of this year. Uh, you talked in the opener about a line of demarcation that Cobain's yeah. death uh, represented. Uh, right. Here, I think, is a good distillation of it. So uh, let me uh, get into that here. Uh, you know, there, there is a definite before Kurt and after Kurt line uh, that was etched into the sand on that horrible April 8th Newsday. Uh, Soundgarden Super Unknown, which we've talked about on this cast a couple of times. Remember, we had an entire mm-hmm. episode dedicated to Soundgarden. Yeah. Uh, that hit the street on the before side of Cobain's death. Uh, Vitalogy hit the street on the after side a few months after the Cobain news uh, disturbed and perhaps even frightened Pearl Jam's members. Mm. Now, we need to explore both classic albums in that context. So uh, first up, we'll talk a little bit about Super Unknown uh, by Soundgarden. Uh, that band it released its epic, monstrous, gargantuan, supreme, sublime, towering metal masterpiece, uh, Super Unknown, on March 8th, uh, 1994. Uh, the album was the band's swing for the superstardom fences. Of course, it also was released exactly a month before Cobain's death, or at least before Cobain's body uh, was found in the greenhouse of his home. And it was recorded, obviously, well in advance of that. Uh, that was a world in which rock stardom and misery clashed mainly in rumor and lyrical lamentations and not actually in real life. Uh, Chris Cornell had his own demons, Nevertheless, it didn't sound like airing them on tape in public sucked or was actually dangerous. Uh, There was catharsis, but there was no alarm. But yet it was a hell of a catharsis. Uh, Super Unknown was a stunningly mature, sophisticated affair that showed the band embracing the spirit of grunge while at the same time subtly beginning a shift away from its template, which, as as we have established, they essentially invented back in the late 1980s there there in Seattle. Now, while My Wave and Kickstand uh, fit the band's M.O. up to that point fabulously, the psychedelic splendor of Black Hole Sun and moody melodic confessionals like Fell on Black Days and The Day I Tried to Live were curveballs unexpected from the guys behind Big Dumb Sex and Jesus Christ Pose. Yeah. In other words, it was a big statement from a big band with big songs that played to big audiences at big arenas. Uh, that was a trajectory that the Seattle bands and close cousins like the Smashing Pumpkins were on in the first quarter of 1994. Uh, none of these bands were all that torn up about it, really. Uh, maybe there was some bitching and some moaning, but no one was turning down the royalties or the big crowds, you know? So, <laughs> yeah. so sound or, you know, so super unknown, uh, it's sold millions of copies. Then it's now, I think it's, it's six times platinum with the RIAA. And for a period of nearly two years, uh, the, the album, which we've said is one of the greatest metal albums of all time, a personal favorite of mine, the album that was my go-to study soundtrack in college. When I had to write a paper, super unknown was probably in my headphones. That album positioned Soundgarden as the, probably the biggest hard rock band in the world for those two years. Now, things were much, much, much different for the rock rock world by the fall of 1994. Like we said, there's before Kurt and after Kurt. Now we're in after Kurt. By then, uh, grief and confusion had set in for a lot of bands, and it wasn't clear how the dust would settle, not just for grunge, but for big rock bands in general. Uh, Would anybody take their ball and go home, so to speak? 
Well, from what has been reported and written about over the years, uh, including by a one-time guest of this podcast, Ronan Giovanni, uh, Pearl Jam nearly did just that. Uh, Eddie Vedder was not in the best place at that point, and he responded by essentially taking leadership of the band, and through Vitalogy, uh, he made a defiant statement that no one would dictate how he and his bandmates would proceed. Nobody would do that but itself. Now, uh, the album does contain some of the band's uh, greatest songs. Among them are Better Man, uh, Nothing Man, which is my favorite song on the record, Corduroy, uh, Tremor Christ, and Not For You among them. Uh, Vetter, though, made sure to infuse it all uh, with enough weird shit uh, to (laughs) repel and confuse the more vanilla or testosterone segment of its fan base. Uh, Stuff like the one-take goofiness of Bugs and Revolution No. 9 wannabe album closer Stupid Mop, a.k.a. Hey Foxy Mop Handle Mama, That's Me, uh, served as a litmus test for all hardcore Pearl Jam adherents, of which I was one. That essentially said, if you stick with us, we are taking you somewhere where you are not used to going. Uh, it was a bold and ballsy stance to take, really. But after uh, Cobain succumbed to his demons, uh, there was a certain urgency to it, I'd say. Uh, Vetter was clearly uncomfortable with his rock stardom and uh, the dark elements it could produce, uh, such as a very real stalker problem uh, that took him years to shake and uh, forced him to move out of Seattle. I used to think that Not For You and Corduroy uh, joined together uh, by a thematic strand that could be lightly termed fuck off, uh, were self-righteous and obnoxious. Uh, These days, though, I get it. Uh, Those songs now have a real emotional resonance for me. Uh, Vetter found himself in a position that maybe only one other person, at least in the United States in 1994's early days, could understand. By the summer of 1994, that guy was dead. So when Vetter sings, I still remember, why don't you, uh, near the end of Not For You, it is not only poignant, but there's also some genuine heartbreak there in terms of what uh, has been lost uh, for Eddie. So uh, that that really uh, covers uh, it uh, with those two records. I think that you know, one is obviously an arena ready uh, sort of we're we're ready for our time sort of big, uh, grand uh, arena rock, uh, hard rock, heavy metal record, and the other is a um, more of sort of a tortured, weird, eclectic uh, statement, and so which you can clearly tell was made mostly after Cobain's death. So it's yeah. pretty striking to talk about these records. Two of the biggest ones of that year two of the most well-selling records of that year, but they couldn't be more different in terms of tone and in terms of uh, worldview, you know, sort of, uh, sort of uh, content, content to be big versus uh, not so content to be big. Right. Uh, to, first on Soundgarden, um, the beauty of Super Unknown is that for a band that was uh, so indebted, you know, sonically, so indebted to, you know, the big behemoth classic rock of Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath, With that album, they finally made an album that was worthy of Zeppelin and Sabbath. Oh, yeah. That's an album that ranks up there in the pantheon. Sure. Um, And and if anyone is not familiar with Super Unknown, the album, go listen to it. Don't do the song, but don't so. Let's hear Black Hole Sun five times on Spotify. No, fuck off. Listen to the whole album. 
Soundgarden, Chris Cornell, and those guys, and Kim Thayil, they made that album to be ho- to be heard as a whole, the yep. way you would listen to Led Zeppelin IV. You know? Yeah. And the, 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 those these guys were classic rockers in that sense. So um, um, that album holds up. It's, it's one of the greatest albums, one of the greatest hard rock albums ever made. It's, I think it's one of the best albums ever made. Um, it's just it's just a titanic monolith of fucking heavy ass rock, and it's also a virtuoso uh, uh, performance by Chris Cornell as a vocalist. I mean, that, that, that his vocals on Super Unknown. Oh yeah, e- e- even better than than Bad Motorfinger, and that was a fucking virtuoso. Oh yeah, no, his, yeah, his vocals. You know? But not only that, but the drum sound on on Super Unknown is incredible. Sure, too. it's just sure. this big statement, meaty ass record, and the the maturation uh, or development of Cornell as a songwriter between 1987 and yeah. 1984 is astonishing, and as a singer, the range, the depth yeah. of his voice—he could sing anything. He could sing low. He could sing high. Yeah. He could sing middle. He, he, he could he could do he could do love songs. He could do ballads. Yeah. He could do angry punkers. He could yeah. He could he could screech like Rob Halford. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, just an incredibly yeah. talented uh, frontman. Yeah. I mean, he looked the part. He sounded the part, and. Uh, his songwriting chops caught up uh, with Super Unknown. It's just an amazing record. Amazing. And Vitalogy, this is my favorite Pearl Jam record. Um, I think it's a masterpiece. Uh, even even the the, uh, the obnoxious uh, songs, like you said, Bugs and Hey Foxy Mop Handle, That's Me. I think they work in the context of the record. Mm-hmm. Um, they add to this eerie weirdness. There's a tense... A tense, eerie weirdness is what I would describe Vitalogy. Um, mm-hmm. Versus, like I said in the previous episode, versus their transitional record. Um, this is where they were. This is where, like, where Pearl Jam, in my opinion, became fucking Pearl Jam. Yeah. Um, and uh, this is where they became like you. You could not criticize anything that you could criticize them for on ten. You can't criticize them anymore on Vitalogy. They became a very different band on this. Um, Vetter took over the band and I think the band was all the better for it <laughs> uh, because Eddie Vetter was the most talented songwriter in this band and it shows in Vitalogy um, it's got some of his best lyrics it's got some of his best yeah yeah some of the song structures are simple so fucking what the best rock and roll is simple see Oasis <laughs> you yep. know um, mm-hmm. um, Green Day was doing simple three chord rock and they were the breakout American band of 94 sure. much more on them much more on them later um, but Vitalogy I think is in my opinion stands as Pearl Jam's I mean I love 10 but Vitalogy is the masterpiece record if I want to say like what is Pearl Jam all about lyrically philosophically musically Vitalogy is what I would point them to. All right. So now we're going to go completely opposite of grunge in Pearl Jam and Soundgarden. Um, it's a segment I call It's a Mellow Fire, uh, named after one of the songs um, by this band's debut album from 1994. Now, who are we talking about? We are talking about Portishead. Yeah, you might, uh, you might as well have named this segment Green Test. Yeah. Uh, Back in the late 1980s in Bristol, UK, DJs Grant, Daddy G. Marshall, and Robert 3D Naja uh, joined forces with the graffiti artist turned rapper Adrian Thaws, now known internationally under the moniker Tricky, Mm -hmm. uh, to form a collective named Massive Attack. Now, after signing with Virgin Records, they would, in 1991, uh, unveil an album called Blue Lines, 
that would kickstart a minor revolution in electronic music that would eventually resonate in overall pop music for many years to follow yeah. uh, called trip hop. And, and trip hop was basically a new genre within electronic music as a whole. Uh, it was a fusion of hip hop and electronic beats but slowed way the fuck down yep. until one couldn't tell where the hip hop started or the electronica began. True enough. And uh, Massive Attack imbued this sonic cocktail with a healthy dose of what could be called ambient psychedelia, mm-hmm. along with dub reggae and contemporary for the time, R&B soul vocal stylings, as well as Tricky's menacing down-tempo hip hop rhythms. It was sexy, it was irresistible, it was compelling, it was shockingly original, and it resulted in trip-hop being arguably the preeminent alternative music throughout the UK and Europe in the 1990s. Yep. But as great as Massive Attack were, they never crossed over to a mainstream or even a rock audience. Another group would do that, yep. <laughs> also, also from Bristol, and they would take trip-hop to its zenith of commercial and popular appeal, and enthrall the oh-so-coveted rock music demographic. This band was Portishead, and their 1994 debut album, Dummy, is not only a landmark recording in trip-hop, it's the album most responsible for popularizing the genre on a grand scale for the 1990s and for generations of fans and musicians to come. Uh, Like Massive Attack, the core of Portishead was a trio, And yes, the group's rhythms and tempos were slow, but that's where the comparisons end. Um, Unlike the two DJs of Massive Attack, the musical backbone of Portishead, drummer and pianist Jeff Barrow and guitarist Adrian Utley, they were traditional musicians who employed organic instrumentation. Uh, Massive Attack had a hip-hop rapper as their front person, but Portishead had Beth Gibbons, a singer who's a tortured, haunting voice brought an element of classic 1960s and 70s R&B soul to their music that really put it over the top as far as crossover appeal meant. Um, Electronics weren't completely abandoned, however. Uh, In fact, loops and hip-hop techniques such as sampling and scratching were embedded into the organic instrumentation and overall trip-hop atmosphere to create the sultry sound of undeniable sexiness and film noir style mystery. Um, Wandering Star samples the song Magic Mountain by the 1970s funk band War uh, to create a driving deep bass led groove that's uh, given levity by Gibbons' uh, soulful vocal touch. Uh, renowned Argentinian film, compo- film score composer Lalo Schifrin has his piece, The Danube, in, or The Danube Incident sampled as a centerpiece of Sour Times, a shimmering piece of a beautiful tension between the spacious orchestral sample and Adrian Utley's twangy, almost country rockish guitar lines. Uh, The most audacious and perfectly used sample is Isaac Hayes' Ike's Rap 2 for the album's biggest hit and most notable song, Glory Box, uh, whose creeping, haunting lurch in the verse leads to an explosion of emotional release and acid-drenched, almost Hendrix-esque guitars in the chorus. It's one of the greatest singles and most arresting singles and songs of the entire decade by any artist. 
Um, it's difficult to understate how impactful and awe-inspiring uh, Portishead's dummy was back in the middle of the 1990s and how influential it would be not just within electronica. Seriously, almost every electronic act started to ape and copy yeah. Portishead's atmospherics and brand of a soulful trip-hop. Yeah. It was also influential in the pop landscape in general. Madonna basically tried to do her own version of Portishead with her 1998 album Ray of Light. Tori Amos delved deeply into Portishead-esque electronica yeah. with her with her late 1990s output. And even Smashing Pumpkins tried to embrace down-tempo electronica and sure. groups-based music with their really crappy 1998 album Adore. Adore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hell, even many years later, Lana Del Rey even ventured into very curiously Portishead-esque trip-hop on her self-titled debut album from 2012 before she set off on a career of a mediocre, same-sounding, whiny, mopey love ballads. <laughs> <laughs> but if you want to hear it done right, go straight to the source. One of the defining and easily in the top shelf of essential albums in the fourth golden age of rock, it is also undisputedly one of the greatest albums of all time. Not even the tone-deaf group of tasteless idiots in Rolling Stone could deny Dummy, as it came in at 131 in their most recent list of the 500 greatest albums of all time. Yeah, which, Chris? Is, yeah, which is about right. Um, I love uh, Dummy. Uh, I love Beth Gibbons. I think she's one of the best singers of the era. Uh, Sour Times has always floored me. I think that's one of the single best songs by anybody of this fourth golden age. Um, and like you said, it basically, uh, these two bands, well, Massive Attack and Drummy, Dummy or Portishead, they in, invented a genre, but in two different ways. Like you said, you get the sort of, uh, you kind of get, you know, the sort of the stoned, uh, spooky, uh, self-serious sounding jazz, uh, portion of it from Portishead. And then you listen to Blue Lines and you just hear the birth of like backpack hip hop. Like you, yeah. you, know, like, you know, the, the JD stuff or the kind of the. You know, the kind of the laid back, uh, groove, groove laden hip hop, like, you know, think like Black Alicious or, yeah, you know, you know, even think like DJ Shadow was, was definitely influenced, uh, by, uh, by Massive Attack too. And, um, I've always, you know, to me, and I've said, you know, you could, uh, dub this entire section of the show, uh, Green Test. Yeah. Uh, Massive Attack was basically dance music to smoke pot to. Uh, yeah, it is. Yeah. It's like, you know, dance music that makes you want to lay on the couch and just groove and just relax. Yeah. Uh, yeah. and so that, that's just kind of a, a, a neat uh, aesthetic, but yeah, like you said, and, and you, you pointed it out, uh, the influence of dummy and of what Beth Gibbons and her bandmates uh, were doing. And yeah, like you said, they really had great tastes in, uh, samples like from 70 soul, like the, uh, the film music, you know, like you mentioned Morricone, well, the Argentinian version of Morricone, you know, those guys, it just yeah. uh, it's just extraordinary the the depth of their uh, the vocabulary the musical vocabulary just uh, floors me uh, still uh, still goes on. All right, so now we go from groundbreaking, original, visionary, new music for the time. Uh, we're gonna go to from that to the 180 degree opposite and some grizzled old rock veterans who put out some of their best work in 1994. Chris. Yeah, this was uh this is what you call the epitome of late uh, of of late uh what what would you call it like sort of late prime success. Mm -hmm. And uh so this was a very very good year for Neil Young and Tom Petty. 
uh, obviously two of the great um, classic rockers or um, two of the greatest songwriters slash sort of uh, rock and roll. Those guys lived rock and roll. They they, they like lived oh, yeah. and slept and ate rock and roll and kind of set the template in the 70s. And they, you know, hey, ironically enough, grunge and the sort of the uh, rebirth of hard guitars on the radio give these guys one last act. So let's right. talk. Let's talk about this. So when Neil Young, uh, who's one of my favorites, um, and I actually spent uh, half of 1994 obsessed with learning Neil Young's catalog. Anyway. Oh, I remember. I was there. Yeah. Non- <laughs> nonstop. Uh, nonstop. <laughs> but anyway, when uh, Neil Young released his last great album, uh, Sleeps with Angels, in August of 1994, he was a, a few months shy of his 49th birthday. When Tom Petty released the unbelievably moving and ingenious Wildflowers, arguably one of rock's most perfect end-to-end albums, uh, later that November, he had just turned 44. In other words, they were essentially the same age as yours truly curmudgeons are now. Uh, Back then, when we were both 19, we ate these records up. Uh, and we even spent money on them. Imagine that. The grunge revolution had given new life to all things bombastic, guitar-driven, loud, rebellious, and soulful. Uh, Neil Young and Tom Petty, both obvious influences on some of the bands we've covered during this fourth Golden Age of Rock series, were able to enjoy one last victory lap in the mainstream as a result, and with a whole new generation of fans in the seats. Now, Arturo, let me ask you a question. Sure. Do you think that could still happen today? Hell fuck no. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't think so either. So think about it this way. Think of the rapper Eminem, who I think right now I think just turned or is about to turn 50. Uh, his last couple records, you know, while they were pretty good, actually, his best work in a long time, they got a so-so reception among the masses here in the States. But when he performed uh, a hit or two uh, during the most recent Super Bowl halftime show alongside Dr. Dre, Snoop Dogg, and 50 Cent. His appearance and his decision to kneel Colin Kaepernick style midway through uh, that performance lit social media ablaze. So what's the commonality among all that? No new music and no effort to make any new splashes musically. The museum came alive uh, for a few terrific days and then the museum closed again uh, a few days later. So that's essentially what's happening now. So now let's contrast that with uh, what happened then. So the Young and Petty revivals of 94, which many of us in this age group and many of our listeners will remember so fondly, are now really a quaint notion. But hey, let's celebrate these records with a plum anyway. Now let's start with Neil Young and Sleeps with Angels. Uh, that album finds Neil Young in his rarest form. It was a form he hadn't employed since 1979's Russ Never Sleeps, yeah. and, perha- and perhaps it only employed really two or three times before that. Uh, he wrote that album like he meant it, he sang the songs like he meant it, and he played his guitar and other instruments like he meant it. Uh, between 79 and 94, that was a rarity. It only really happened on Ragged Glory and Parts of Freedom. Uh, that alone would have been thrilling. But there's a sense of loss and a longing for what's left behind, uh, whether it's rendered in mournful tones or angry ones, that pervades the record and eventually 
upon a couple of listens, you realize, damn, that's a pretty special record. Uh, here, uh, the tack piano numbers uh, that open and close the album pack just as much punch as the lead guitar arrangements. There is also a striking quietness to Neil's vocal uh, performances throughout most of the record, and only once on the hilarious but marvelous anthem piece of crap does he rise into something resembling unhinged anger. Uh, mostly, he's like a low-speaking funeral attendee, uh, lamenting violence on the song Drive-By, which is wonderful, or uh, poverty on the spooky, uh, sort of electronic-ish uh, song Safeway Cart. Or he's like the cranky narrator of an old plane of Western, uh, describing lost glory in Western Hero and on the song Trans Am. But Neil also makes it clear he's not done living either, even though the title track is purportedly a grungy tribute to Kurt Cobain. The pairing of My Heart and Prime of Life is a wonderful one-two punch to open the record. Uh, the latter features one of my favorite Neil solos, which was arguably the most appropriate to one of his recordings since Rust's uh, classic Powderfinger. Uh, seriously, the, the solo to uh, Prime of Life is just wonderful. Uh, the following year, uh, Young uh, made his implicit connection to grunge extremely explicit when he invited members of Pearl Jam to back him on 1995's record Mirrorball. Which um, we'll discuss next episode. Yes, we will. <laughs> on which uh, the best stuff is amazing, but the rest isn't so amazing. And then from there, Young fell back into laziness and inconsistency with the occasional inspirational song or two every few years. And he probably will never come out of that den ever again. You know, uh, I think probably the, the I loved, I kind of liked the album Greendale from 2003. And he had a great single called Let's Impeach the President in 2006. <laughs> Otherwise, yeah. the rest of it since then, meh. Uh, basically since downtown in 1995, he hasn't done anything except for a few things worth uh, caring about. But as the hard rock revival and the era of true meaning uh, neared its end, uh, he dropped this perfectly timed morsel of greatness. Now, Tom Petty's Wildflowers is more than just a morsel. It's the whole damn bucket of cookies. Yeah. Uh, working with producer Rick Rubin, and claiming the record as his second solo album, i.e., without uh, the Heartbreakers in the title, uh, it hits a it hits musical and emotional heights that very very few recording artists have ever reached. Uh, Petty has a lot to say, and a lot of ways to say it, and here it's all taut and passionate and melodic and transcendent. And some point, it, a few couple points, it's damn near miraculous as on what may be one of the single greatest rock songs ever, A Higher Place, on which he shows his Bird's influence, but also takes it way, way, way beyond anywhere that Roger McGuinn could have ever gone artistically. Uh, if you couldn't tell, I absolutely fucking love this record. Uh, enthusiasm is unbridled. Uh, to filter Wildflowers uh, through the lens of a modern meme... Wildflowers is the sound of Tom Petty walking up to artists like the Black Crows, Beck Hansen, Will Oldham, and even Pearl Jam, and, and basically proclaiming, hold my beer. <laughs> uh, he sings and plays his ass off here, and he shows us the never-ending power of a well-sequenced, well-conceived, consistent rock album. 
the diversity of tempos, uh, styles, instrumentation, and volume here is jaw-dropping. Sure, you know, he follows the ballads with rockers and then with acoustic ditties, but he does it so damn well that it just basically defies the formula. Like Young, Petty took his opportunity for a last hurrah and ran with it happily here. Unlike Young, however, Petty did put out a few more really good albums after this one. Uh, There was no actual resting on his laurels. Uh, For proof, check out 1996 soundtrack to the film She's the One, which is actually really great. Not nearly as great as this, but still really great. So, yep, two legends in their 40s found a way back to matter in 1994 and to successfully distribute new music. Dems was the days, I tell you. Yeah. Now here we are, and Arturo and I are left to fear. We're just left here to feel old and left out of Gen Z's conversation. Oh, well. Yeah. What's your thought? Rick Rubin, in an interview that he gave, uh, I think it was a couple of years after Tom Petty died. Um, and, you know, Rick Rubin, who produced the album, um, he still maintained, uh, uh, he kept in touch with Tom Petty throughout the years. They, 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 they remained friends. Um Ruben said that um, whenever he would uh, meet with Tom Petty or talk to him, and uh, he would bring up uh, he would bring up Wildflowers because it's the album they worked on together. Um, Petty, to his dying day, could not sit through and listen to Wildflowers in its entirety. And Ruben asked him, "Why? Why can't you listen to it?" Because Petty says it pisses it when he whenever he would start listening to Wildflowers, he had to turn it off. Because it pissed him off that he could never improve on it. Yep. <laughs> you know, it pissed him off. Like, I, I can't listen to this record. I cannot improve on this. Fuck, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, and he made some great albums after. The She's the One soundtrack from 96. I Love Echo from 99. That's yeah, a, that's a good of, record, yeah. One of Petty's more under, his last great album, you know. Um, but see, the, uh, unfortunately, you know, I love Wildflowers. You love Wildflowers. But you know who's kind of lukewarm on it? Who's that? Our good buddy Robert Crisgow. Oh, what, what what does Bob have to say about Wildflowers? A very very brief review. Quote: If he were a flower, he would be wilted. But since he he's really more of a dick, call him torpid. That Rick Rubin, what a laid back guy. B minus. <laughs> oh bob 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 oh i love you but you were so wrong there so so wrong he's he's not a big tom petty and the heartbreakers fan he gives all their albums b's and b minuses hmm. yeah but 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 that's not really a tom petty and the heartbreakers record i mean that that's yeah. just petty just finding a different level i mean it's yeah it really is it's incredible it's, it's aged really well too I mean, it yeah, really has. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And "Sleeps with Angels" is an album that I've learned to love over the years. I wasn't always a big—I wasn't a big fan of it when I was young, but now mm-hmm. I really, really, really appreciate it. Um, "Sleeps with Angels" has this uh, has has a mood. It's, it's 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 got this murky mood to it. Yeah, that, that that permeates throughout the whole album. That's why when "Piece of Crap," which rocks, mm-hmm. uh, it's so jarring when when, when, yeah. when that song appears on the album. Sure, yeah. it's it's a solemn so, record. I think solemn yeah. is, is the is the best way to put yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. On this episode, Chris and I delved into the amazing year of 1994. On the next episode, the fourth golden age of rock will take us to 1995, one of the greatest years ever for British rock. Oasis, Radiohead, and PJ Harvey release enduring 
all-time great classic albums, while Blur, Elastica, and The Verve released some of the era's most criminally underrated records. Back in the U.S., Pearl Jam stand up for their fans by waging war against corporate ticketing agent Ticketmaster, while Dave Grohl steps out of Kurt Cobain's shadow and puts out the first Foo Fighters album. Alanis Morissette underlines how huge a decade the 1990s were for women in rock by releasing one of the biggest selling albums of all time. Neil Young continues his hot streak revival, while other old-timers releasing some of their best albums in years include David Bowie, Motorhead, and yes, even Morrissey. So, Tune in next time as yours truly curmudgeons break down the immense year of 1995 as our series chronicling the fourth golden age of rock continues. So. Well, sp- speaking of solemn, yeah, but uh, yep. yeah, we went to uh, we did a run of great American indie rock of, of the 1994. Now. Well, why do we talk about solemn? Well, lo-fi, as in low fidelity, intentionally cheap, low-budget sounding indie rock became a thing in the 1990s, thanks to the likes of Pavement, Sebado, and Guided by Voices. However, the middle of the decade started to see a groundswell of indie and underground artists and bands taking the lo-fi approach to intimate, stripped-down, folk-based Yes, solemn music. (laughs) Um, Who knew that when Bruce Springsteen decided to release his two-track recorded homemade demos in the form of his 1982 classic (laughs) album, Nebraska, that he was kickstarting a musical trend that would blow up a little over 10 years later? Who knew? (laughs) Herein lies the birth of indie folk. And 1994 saw an explosion of these kinds of albums. Let's run them down quickly. Sure. First, Elliot Smith in his debut album, Roman Candle. Ever since Elliot Smith committed suicide in 2003, he's gone down in music history as the singer-songwriter of choice, non-Cobain and non-Vetter division. For those looking for an artist who best articulated the angst, despair, alienation, and societal disillusionment of Generation X. In his time, though, he had a huge critical and cult following in the indie underground with a series of painfully intimate, low-budget, lo-fi, folk-to-folk-rock recordings leading up to his brilliant 1997 album, Either Or, and his moment in the mainstream sun when his song, Miss Misery, included in the soundtrack to the movie Goodwill Hunting, uh, and was nominated for an Academy Award in 1998. Personally, I love his major label debut from that same year, XO, which saw Smith expand his musical vocabulary to lush instrumentation and that augmented his gorgeous melodies and harrowing lyrics with an endearing love of core influences one would never have expected, the Beatles and the Beach Boys. However, his 1994 debut album, Roman Candle, uh, is the album that marked the beginning of the Elliott Smith myth quote-unquote. The lo-fi, low-budget sound could easily be attributed to a lack of a recording budget, but it could also be attributed to an aesthetic choice. Uh, The dichotomy of Smith's whispery vocals and the dark, disturbing 
hybrid of sadness and anger that the lyrics convey in the title track could only be emphasized with as minimal instrumentation and as sparse a production as possible. Uh, the jaunty folksiness of a Condor Avenue recalls early Paul Simon, but a careful listen to the lyrics reveals a Paul Simon dripping with disgust and frustration with a dysfunctional romance described in vivid observational detail. Uh, no Name Number One is as heartbreaking a portrayal of self-loathing -lo self and crippling alienation manifested as self-marginalization ever put to record. That's a mouthful. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, Last Call, with its uh, point of view intermittently shifting from third to second to first person, is a gloriously poetic take on the end of a relationship that manages to be both misanthropic and carry a sense of weary resignation. Um, it's one of the great songs in Elliot Smith's entire discography, coming from an album that, while not as great as what would come later, is a terrific introduction to the man's music if you're inclined to listen to him on an album-to-album -album basis. Chris? Yeah, uh, pretty. I mean, this thing about Smith is he was capable, of, uh, as capable of pretty uh, as anybody in this era. I mean, his I mean, this album especially, it, it, it just has a, a really kind of... Uh, I don't know. Like you said, there's like a, not necessarily a sweetness, but there's a, a almost like a plaintiveness uh, and a, and a, uh, a beauty. It's, it's a very pretty record. I mean, I think all four of the no name songs, there's no name one, two, three, four. Yeah. All, yeah. all of those are very striking and very gorgeous. And uh, yeah, I agree with you. I think XO was a very strong record. I think that uh, he grew into, you know, here you see the gestation of it. Uh, Paul Simon, that's a good call. I mean, obvious influence on, on Smith. Uh, but yeah, he grew into a pretty singular songwriter before he died. And I always kind of respected Smith. I mean, if you're going to be that miserable and that suicidal, uh, he committed seppuku. Uh, that's, that, yeah. that, that's a pretty good, that's a pretty uh, loud way to go. I mean, that's that, that nothing says like, I really want to leave like quite like stabbing yourself in the chest with a sword, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Jeez. Yeah. Or a knife or whatever you want to say. So, wow. so anyway, moving on. Anyway. The next uh, uh, lo-fi indie folk out great album of 1994, there were quite a few of them. Mm -hmm. Will Oldham is now known as one of American Roots Music's great singer-songwriters. Emphasis on the songwriter since he's never been much of a singer. <laughs> um, but he's become that under his artistic name, Bonnie Prince Billy. But back in the 1990s, he started out doing, you guessed it, lo-fi, low-budget recordings of sparse, country blues and folk based music under the moniker palace brothers and mm -hmm. eventually palace eventually palace music mm -hmm. he came from the same underground artistic scene in louisville kentucky as the post-rock band slint but man was his music different from that band's <laughs> uh mm. whereas slint set out to break new ground and invent a wholly new vocabulary for rock music oldham relished in tradition and sought to evoke the eerie Southern Gothic atmosphere and ethos of the best and earliest American folk music. Um, this phase of Oldham's career peaked with 1994's Days in the Wake. Uh, the beautifully doleful You Will Miss Me When I Burn starts the album with a plaintive, winsome yearning that echoes the brilliant country poet Towns Van Zant. Uh, yeah. the, tr the track Mealness has a cryptic ambiguity which would soon become a staple 
of Oldham's songwriting style? Is he talking about the second coming of Jesus? Is he <laughs> talking about a loner blissfully walking the earth and observing the evils of the world? Yeah. Who knows? Mm-hmm. And of course, I Am a Cinematographer, one of Oldham's best-known songs, uh, is a gorgeous declaration of choosing a life of humility and simplicity over a life of vice and artistic indulgence, worthy of comparison to any of Bob Dylan's late 1960s odes to uh, going back to the country. Chris, what is your take on what is essentially early Bonnie Prince Billy? Uh, Will Oldham is special. I think that uh, you're right. I mean, there's a lot of spirituality uh, that runs uh, through his music and there's like sort of that ambig- ambiguously uh, Christian stuff. But he also, uh, he his whole mission was to translate the sounds and influences of Appalachia into sort of modern, into a modern pop construct and through Palace Brothers, and then obviously with Bonnie Prince Billy, he was able to do that. And he's, a, like, especially, like, here, you know, you see it in the beginning, and you see his voice starting to rise. And then when he gets to I See a Darkness, I mean, wow. Yeah. I mean, he's just blowing it out of the park. Yeah. Going from, we're now going to go to the, the, the what does not suck ass, mm-hmm. and the final, the last of our uh, indie folk albums of 94, and the best one of them all. Um, Elliot Smith, Will Oldham, and John Darniel were, are all great songwriters and fine artists. But in my opinion, neither of them could quite match the stylistic eclecticism, the lyrical sophistication, and yes, really, depth, something he's very underrated for, and the overall artistic scope of one Beck Hansen, known around the world as the legendary Beck. Despite the fact that his most recent couple of albums have been disastrous, embarrassing attempts at modern electronic pop, mm-hmm. we'll brush that under the rug. <laughs> However, the man does have a stellar body of work covering a decade and a half that should one day get him in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And 1994 is basically year zero for one of America's true national musical treasures. Um, recorded right before the album Mellow Gold. And the single, and before the single "Loser" uh, launched uh, Beck into stardom, and released in the summer of '94, when Beck had just become a household name, "One Foot in the Grave" finds Beck in classic American roots mode, mining traditional folk, blues, and country stylings in a, yep, you guessed it, very, very lo-fi, low-budget sound. Yeah, the the, but, the, the the tape recorder approach. Basically, yeah. yeah, but Beck was no dilettante and the man knew the history behind traditional American folk music and following in the American folk tradition of adopting the melodies, lyrics and chords of classic standards and making them your own, a la Bob Dylan. Mm-hmm. Um, he recast and recontextualized some of American folk and blues music's most revered icons into his own unique and spellbinding vision of Americana. Uh, Delta blues legend Skip James saw his classic composition. Well, he didn't really see it. He was dead at this point. (laughs) Anyway, uh, um, Jesus is a mighty good leader adopted by Beck into what was essentially a cover with he's a mighty good leader. Um, He he, he took the Jesus out. I I guess the son of a Scientologist can't really quite bring himself to fully praise Jesus, eh? There you go. Anyway, um, the legendary first family of country music, the Carter family, they get get poached by Beck 
well, when the basic melody of their mournful ballad Lover's Lane is it's adapted, really, into something wholly heartbreaking and striking with girl dreams. Uh, and, es and especially its resonant refrain of, you're just the girl of my dreams, but my dreams never seem to come true. Um, in 1971, the Rolling Stones adapted Mississippi Fred McDowell's version of the old African-American spiritual, You Gotta Move, mm -hmm. for their Sticky Fingers album. Uh, but Beck updates that song for the indie rock set of the 1990s with 14 Rivers, 14 Floods. Uh, songs that are purely Beck originals also shine on this most underrated of albums in Beck's discography. A uh, few artists and songwriters could plummet the depths of surreal darkness with vivid imagery as effectively as Beck did with haunting exercises in starkness such as I Get Lonesome, the grimy indie blues of Outcome, and of course, this being the American folk tradition, the obligatory woman, women done me wrong ballad, yep. ass, asshole. Uh, in Beck's hands, however, the focus isn't so much on the woman who does the emotional damage as much as the existential angst of the recipient of the damage. Yep. Uh, the song was brilliantly covered a couple of years later by Tom Petty on his soundtrack for the romantic comedy, She's the One. Yep. Um, one Foot in the Grave didn't really sell. It was released on Calvin Johnson's indie label, K Records, as part of Beck's deal with Geffen Records to let him release smaller scale works on smaller mm -hmm. indie labels. But it proved that Beck was no joke, and it garnered him very positive critical reviews, paving the way for his artistic breakthrough and era-defining smash album a couple of years down the road. Uh, more consistent and brimming with better songs than Mellow Gold, it's one of the underappreciated nuggets in Beck's catalog and, in this curmudgeon's opinion, one of his five best albums. Chris? Uh, yeah, very good record. And uh, it, it's one of those things that, kind of like like me, that if you caught on to Beck, you know, maybe Mellow Gold, but but more seriously with like Odalay. Uh, yeah. And then, uh, and then he throws what you think at the time is a curveball in Mutations. And then a yeah. couple years later throws you another curveball in uh, Sea Change. And you're wondering, well, where the hell did that come from? Well, right. it, he always had it. And it comes back to this record. Like you mm. said, Asshole probably is my favorite song on it. Um, and yeah, you, you're right. There's a lot of, there's, there, there is that sort of folk or uh, Delta Blues tradition of, of cribbing the guy who came before you and, and, and kind of re yeah. remixing it. Uh, yeah, good call. Actually, I, maybe I should feel silly. I hadn't even made the connection with 14 Rivers, 14 Floods, and you got to move. Until yeah. now, I'd say, no, maybe it's similar, but wait a second. Oh, yeah, they actually are cribbing the same territory, you know? <laughs> yeah. And now we're going to, our, our next two segments is going to be pretty much, you know, because this, this 1994 is the midpoint of the fourth golden age of rock. This is where mainstream rock would go by the end of the 90s, for better or for worse. Chris, let's start with this band. Are you ready? Yeah, yep, the, 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 yep. We're we are talking about corn. Corn uh, uh, did hit the street in 1994, and uh, this was really where uh, new metal starts. So let's talk about this. Now, in 1994, Corn frontman Jonathan Davis uh, introduced new metal to the world by, as Arturo uh, suggested, by bellowing a pertinent question: "Are you ready?" Uh, which is <laughs> most associated with this band. Uh, probably. Now, at that point, uh, no one was ready. 
and Korn snuck into the mix without much fanfare or critical support during this year. Although some of you may remember that there was a knockoff uh, music video channel called The Box. Uh, mm. Blind, which is the song that line is from, was in heavy rotation on The Box, which is basically a cable access uh uh, video, music video by request station. So uh, for those folks who remember that, that's where I first knew of Corn, and that's kind of where maybe they got their first exposure. So anyway, yeah. so they kind of snuck in the mix. So in contrast, by the end of 1998, whether you were ready or not, new metal and the genre that Corn essentially invented with its self-titled debut here in 1994 was there, and it was massive, and it was being shoved down your throat. Uh, for a lot of us, the back end of that story is not something we particularly like to remember. Uh, I worked Woodstock 99 uh, as a working journalist and covered that whole uh, Mook Boy riot thing. Uh, so uh, Fred Durst, fuck you. Uh, and so that's really too bad because while Corn is still to- together and making records, uh, no one seems to care. And <laughs> they don't really get their due. I mean, there's no real... I don't sense that there's any sort of wave of new metal nostalgia. Do you? Uh, no, <laughs> no, I, I don't really get that. So, and so I will admit that it took me a long time to not only appreciate Corn the album. We're talking about Corn the album from 1994, but also to conclude that removed from its historical tentpole, it's actually really damn good. Uh, as long has been said. Rock and roll is supposed to piss off your parents, doubly so for heavy metal. But outside of disco, I don't think there's another rock offshoot that also pissed off the rock critics as much as your parents as new metal. Uh, On the self-titled album, Korn introduces us to metal as primal scream therapy. Uh, At the time, uh, Davis, as he said in interviews, was very badly hooked on methamphetamines and had been subject to numerous forms of abuse, including the sexual kind, throughout his life. Uh, He had a lot of pain to get out of his system, and what came out of him sure as hell sounded like pain. Uh, It was ugly, it was brutal, it was wince-inducing, it was profane, nasty, and as its best, as on album closer Daddy, and on the track, I will spell it because I don't really want to say it, F-A-G-E-T, Uh, It's almost unbearable. Uh, Davis uh, was backed by the incredible combination of Brian Head Welch on guitar and Reg Fieldy Arvizu on bass. And their arrangements were as strangely informed by as much as as much by jazz and funk as it was by the downtuned stylings of Black Sabbath and more contemporarily Faith No More and Pantera. Uh, That's something we established here earlier uh, in earlier episodes of the Fourth Golden Age series, Corn's uh, music, as it's at its best, is a form no one would choose to listen to, or if we live uh, in an ivory tower, would ever admit to listening to. I think that was a real problem. That you know, I think new fair new metal really got an unfair rap, but uh, that music compels us to do just that, uh, even if we don't quite get it. Uh, you know, it forces us to listen to it, even if we're not quite getting it where it, it's compelling. Uh, is Korn's music smart? Of course not in the conventional sense. A grown man singing nursery rhymes in a half screen, as Davis does on shoots and ladders, is hard to take seriously. 
But do give serious thought to where it comes from. And you realize that corn did something pretty special here. Uh, It produced a competent and deliberate ugliness that resonated with other outcast working class rascals from places like Bakersfield, California, where these guys grew up. Uh, This was a populist statement and the beginning of a movement that swelled as our fourth golden age of rock came to its end. It was really something and uh, it still is. I will mention, too, that the notion of a new metal singer is a misnomer. Because one, <laughs> one of the marks of new metal is the front man screaming, shouting, spitting, bleh, you know, mumbling. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, come on, like even Surge from System of a Down is, you know, it's so, yeah. so, yeah. so basically, it's, it's, you know, it just basically is screaming to down two guitars, and there you get new metal. Corn uh, was. Now, if you want to call System of a Down and Slipknot actual new metal bands, fine. But I guess Corn is the best in the new metal bands. Uh, what say you, Arturo? Um, yeah, I, I agree. The, the, the first Corn album, if you can get rid of some of the awful lyrics and 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 Dave and Jonathan Davis being crude and and insensitive, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, yeah, the, the music is pretty inventive. It's, it's actually pretty original. And I think one of the reasons that Corn, it's not the main reason. That you know, you know, corn isn't as fondly remembered, is that they basically just recycled themselves after the first album. Yeah, and they're all like small, but not not small variations on their first album, but not big enough to like warrant interest. Yeah, I mean, and, 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 and that's the problem with corn is that they just they never they never came close to matching the first album, and they after a while they just recycled it. Another subgenre that got kick-started in uh, 1994. One that I probably don't have much love for either. But anyway, it's important. We got to mention it. Um, punk rock has existed since the mid-1970s, but it took almost 20 years for punk rock in its classicist, purest form to cross over to the American mainstream, albeit in a very accessible, highly melodic, rather safe for soccer moms form <laughs> known as pop punk. Yep. Um, in the 1980s, legendary Minneapolis band Husker Du made the transition from hardcore punk to alternative rock, and by doing so provided the template for pop punk. They colored their brand of punk with power pop song structures and melodies directly inspired by 1960s and 70s classic rock and roll. It was revolutionary at the time, and many would event many who would eventually form bands uh, uh, were bands, most notably Nirvana, who broke through in the 1990s and changed the entire rock landscape with a noisy, nasty, corrosive, heavily grunge-flavored version of that formula. Also listening was a generation of punk rock fans way out in the West Coast in Berkeley, California. These kids formed their own straight-edge punk scene, very much inspired by the DIY Washington, D.C. scene started by Minor Threat and carried over by Fugazi. And it was eventually coined the Gilman Street scene, mm-hmm. named after the all-ages the all ages punk club on the street of the same name. Soon enough, a slew of bands started to emerge on local indie labels. And the two breakout stars from this punk enclave were Green Day and Rancid. Uh, It may be hard for younger generation rock fans who have grown up with Green Day's 
pervasive status as one of the world's biggest rock bands to visualize them as a scruffy, childish outsiders who crashed the grunge party and turned a generation onto straight ahead punk rock, albeit a watered down, bland, polished for corporate radio version that would go down easy in shopping malls across the country. But that's exactly what Green Day did with their 1994 major label debut, Dookie, after the band cut their teeth with two poorly produced, same-sounding kitty punk albums on tiny and now defunct Northern California indie label, Lookout Records. No true rock music fan needs description for all-time classic songs, Longview, Basket Case, and When I Come Around, all of which were ubiquitous on both rock and top 40 radio oh, yeah. and, and MTV. Oh, yeah. Um, for, in, for all intents and purposes, Dookie was the pop punk Nevermind, mm-hmm. selling a whopping 8 million copies in the U.S. alone. Oh, yeah. And, and Green Day became the Nirvana for the pop punker and skater punk set that would in a few years become synonymous with the annual summer Vans Warped Tour. Sure. Uh, I, for one, have never been a fan, a big fan of Green Day and even less of Dookie, but the story of 1994 cannot be told without mentioning this album. Chris? Yeah, uh, here's the thing. like, You cannot knock Green Day uh, for lacking credibility. Uh, they definitely were credible. They, they came up through sure. that Berkeley punk scene. They had their chops. Sure. Uh, they lived the life. Uh, here's the thing, though. Uh, Billy Joe Armstrong is a uniquely gifted tune meister. The guy can just yeah. he, he can just write tunes. Uh, they're closer to Broadway tunes. I mean, he's just a very strong pop song writer. And, yeah. you know, the difference is, is he writes these these really great, really tight, hooky pop songs and he just does it in a, a punk idiom. He's not really a punk rocker. He's just a very gifted tune writer who just happened to dig punk rock and like playing loud guitars. Uh, yeah. So, you know, that that's kind of where that is, which is why he was able to you know be sort of, you know, soccer mom approved and, you know, get that widespread thing. Another another one who was pretty good at this is the main songwriter of this next band. And that next band is Rancid. Uh, the other Berkeley band who broke big, but not nearly as big as Green Day. Yeah. Uh, but they did so on a, on a large underground scale with a fervent cult following with their own 1994 album, Let's Go, released on Epitaph Records, a punk and pop punk centered indie label with major label distribution. Stylistically, they were indebted to the early sound of The Clash, sometimes transparently so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Nevertheless... Uh, Singer-guitarist Tim Armstrong had a knack for writing a catchy sing-along punk ditty such as Gave It Away and Salvation, the latter of which became a decent hit on rock radio. Mm -hmm. Uh, Rancid would perfect their uh, poor man's clash shtick with the follow-up album from 1995, And Out Come the Wolves, which is truly and sincerely a great album and one of, if not the best, pure orthodox punk album of the 1990s but let's go is what put rancid on the map and is worth checking out chris yeah uh salvation is, is like you said was we'll put them on the map and that's where i first heard of them and i also love and out came the wolves uh that's a great album you know uh, yeah. time bomb and ruby soho and, and yeah. all that stuff and the third and final pop punk success story of 1994 
came from Orange County, California, in the form of The Offspring, who, after kicking around for almost 10 years and releasing two albums on indie labels, caught on in a huge way with their third album, Smash, also released on Epitaph Records, a la Rancid. Uh, their pop-punk pop sound was a bit more indebted to grunge and alternative rock, especially their gnarly guitar riffs, but they were very much pop-punk in their youthful lyrical focus on rebellion, sometimes even mindless rebellion, and bad girls hurting their youthful male pride. Yeah, that, 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 mm -hmm. that, those are your pop-punk lyrical themes. Yeah, pretty much. Um, the album sold an unbelievable 6.5 million copies in the U.S. alone on the strength of classic singles like Come Out and Play with its now iconic two-bar Arabic guitar phrase, uh, its very mm -hmm. Nirvana-esque stop-and-start dynamic, and its uh, catchy vocal hook of uh, you gotta keep it separated, yep. uh, self-esteem, and gotta get away rock with a clean, crisp, well-produced sheen that was perfect for rock radio. Personally, I've never been a fan of The Offspring. Their lyrics were a little too dopey for me, and their brand of punk was a bit too generic and derivative of the first wave of alternative rock that I much prefer. But at least this period of The Offspring had some punk credibility before they spent the rest of the decade doing novelty punk rock suburban cornball shit. Pretty fly for a white guy, indeed. Yeah, Chris. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, well, here's the thing about the Offspring is that obviously they're most they're they're most famous for uh, for come out and play uh, and uh, pretty fly for a white guy, which are the funny songs. You know, those are kind of the yeah. funny, quirky, uh, kind of uh, I don't know, enjoyable uh, kind of knockoff songs. But they actually have a couple other things that are staple of the records. They actually could write a decent song. I mean, they, you know, yeah, like every a, now and then, like, yeah. like a decent, yeah. true song. So there's a few that are staples of quote unquote, again, modern rock radio. I wish they changed the name, uh, that are, <laughs> that are still there. Uh, yeah. the most interesting thing about the offspring still, and it's, it's a good note to, to mention this, that, uh, here, here was the nineties for you that the, the leader of one of the best selling rock bands of the mid nineties also has a PhD in molecular biology, who, yeah. who wrote his doctoral thesis on an HIV-related uh, topic in terms of wow. know, looking at uh, ways of eradicating uh, HIV. So De mm. Dexter Holland, he, he had... Uh, smart, a smart man. Yeah. He, he, Gen legitimately smart. <laughs> yeah, a legitimately smart guy who wrote legitimately dumb songs, you know? So I kind of respect that, you know? It's like, you know, he, he clearly, because of that and with everything you read... Clearly, they, they you know they weren't looking to to change the world through rock and roll. They weren't looking to be revolutionaries. They they weren't trying to be rage against the machine. Let's just put it that way. Uh, they, yeah. They knew what they were doing. They were making like big dumb you know uh, over the top pop songs, punk songs, uh, rocking on the radio, and you know going on the road and you know drinking beers and saying hi to chicks and stuff like that. And <laughs> but at least but at least they knew it. You know they 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 weren't trying right. to be super serious. And so at least I respect them for that. I mean, like I said, this guy could have been making three hundred fifty thousand dollars, like you know, and just you know working a nice safe job for uh, like a, a pharmaceutical company or something. Right. But he became a rock star. Hey hey hey. You yeah. know, got to respect them. Yeah. Yeah. So. And so on this that note, <laughs> brings us to the end of nineteen ninety four. Yeah, we're. Uh, we are now, uh, I guess you would say, more than halfway through the golden age, or the fourth golden age of, of rock. 
the more I think about it, this year, like 1993 to me was a revolutionary year. 1991-92, kind of the fond, where were you kind of memories, kind of formative. 1993, I've always thought was kind of a revolutionary year that's underrated. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This year is the one that I think I uh, that I internalized the most. This is where things kind of changed. And yeah. you, you, know, you could kind of feel the shift. And uh, what I remember from it was, a lot of great stuff going on, but it was also a year because of the Cobain thing and because uh, the stuff that we thought was so grand and so important and so honest and true started to fade. And like I said, the green days of the world came up, the corns came up, uh, you know, and then, you know, and sort of the, the pop stuff started to get more on the radio. So it's like when meaning started to fade and maybe that's one of the reasons why the world sped up for us, you know. We'd be remiss here at the end if we didn't at least mention that sliver of corporate cynicism, Woodstock 94. Sure, Nine Inch Nails, Green Day, and All the Mud made star turns, but Live, salt and Peppa, and Aerosmith also took part in this shit. Oh well, at least it wasn't the catastrophe we saw five years later at Woodstock 99. Anyway, up next in our fourth Golden Age of Rock series is 1995, in which the Brits were coming... And the Brits were rocking balls. Hit us up at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com with thoughts, remembrances, and insults. We'll see everyone again here in two weeks.